This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Top of the morning to you. Friday. Thank heavens. <sighs> you know, it's Friday. Had a big day yesterday. Graduation of my high school child. And the next child down, walk-off home run. Oh, wow. To take him to a championship game. That's what... <laughs> the children are screaming. That's why your office was dark after the show? Uh-huh. Okay. I thought you were asleep under the desk again. Well, I slept a little while, and, th- okay. and then, then I had to leave. I was going to go graduation. knock on the door, and I went, ah, he's probably asleep. I, I went to graduation, and that's always fun. Cause no. Because you're sitting there like, oh. done. Done. Well, there's that part. But you're saying uh. done for like two and a half hours because yeah. somebody keeps talking. Well, yeah. A lot of talks, and then... Uh, a lot of names to read. Well, there's that. But it was a small class because they just split his high school and built another high school. But we went to my daughter's a few years ago, three times more students. Mm. It was a nightmare. So this was actually beautiful. And then, and he sang, my son sang. It was pretty cool. And then um, went to a baseball game and my other son. Walk off home run. Walk off home run. My uh, sister had graduated a couple weeks ago from yeah. high school, and the beauty of it was that they streamed it online, so you could watch it online. Oh, cool! And Great idea. When they started doing names, I just listened for my sister's name. I have a you know B last name, so yeah. she's one of you the do? first. Yeah, words yeah. all. Yeah. It starts okay. So then I could just turn it off. I could just mute it, and I didn't have to pay attention to it from there. So on. <laughs> it was great. Wow! It's like it's almost like you missed. The whole celebration part. Well, except for the Jared Wilson, <laughs> Janelise Wilson. Ugh, it's the worst. Jimmy John Jr. Wilson. Yeah. And honestly, at that point, everyone's waiting for someone to trip. Yeah. That's well, it. Yeah. And they, you can tell that they've, they've kind of set up little things so you can't be too dumb anymore. Like in mine, we had a long ramp that was about four feet off the ground. Just asking for problems. Asking for yeah. problems. And one of our kids obliged and fell off the four-foot ramp. <laughs> they do that on purpose. In, on, he totally did. Pratt fall. And then, you know, paramedics come. They, like, lay some cords across yeah. the stand. Just It's all fun and games until you're intubating somebody. <laughs> then, you know. But it was great. It was a great day. So, you know, now I'm going to have a son leaving for senior party. What are they called? Senior trip. Hmm. I've got another son going on a trek where they go. The, the pre- pretend force march? Yeah, the pretend yeah. baton. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that other people did that, so we don't have to, but whatever. Right, where they go, they go <laughs> pretend to be pioneers crossing the plains. Yeah. And, you know, whatever. Because we're, we're going out of town, too. So everybody's leaving town, and we're just going to leave our three youngest and some water. That's good. And some rice checks. Rice checks. <laughs> <laughs> the rice checks are on the counter, guys. We'll see you. We, I think we have enough milk to get you through Wednesday. <laughs> After that, call Grandma for milk. She'll bring in a milk truck. You're like, do not call me. That's right. Call Grandma. But we you. went to Costco, so we have plenty of cereal. We bought it in bulk. Mm. Lots of rice checks. We only buy one brand. Well, when you when you have a favorite. 
Yeah. You have something that works. Don't mix it up. No. Don't mix it up. So um, here's the deal, though. Apparently, you, I don't know if you heard this, Hillary Clinton's taking on the GOP. Yeah, she's, she's calling people out. She spoke. Now, remember yesterday we talked about how she spoke, but she wasn't going to talk to the media. And they put out a press release saying that the, the speech is the interview. Right. Yeah. So she's not going to talk she to you. She doesn't need just, to. Yeah. yeah. Or, I mean, but she's, she's representing the people, but she's really just going to speak to us. But she's defending the fact that the GOP are making it too hard. She was at Texas Southern University. She said, uh, called out Republican state legislatures for restricting early access to polls, saying that she had, uh, saying attempting to suppress Democratic voter turnout. What part of democracy are they afraid of, she asked. Mm. She expressed concern over a sweeping effort to disempower and disenfranchise people of color, young people, and poor people, and called for reform in national voter registration laws that would make it easier for young people and people of color to vote. She wants. She called for automatic universal voting registration for all citizens when they turn 18. Hmm. You're just in. You're in. Now, you can opt out. She says there is that opportunity. If you don't want to register, you can opt out, but you're automatically in. Well, and I think the assumption is if we just make it easier, everyone will vote. But it seems like to me the real aversion we have to voting are politicians. That's yeah. We don't like our options. Every year I go through this kind of, this thing like why vote? Right. Nothing's going to change. We'll it's see. Yeah, the that's same it. people. And so, then you end, and then I end up voting because I feel like I need to. But well, we know that because Congress, all of their ratings are so low. There's obviously an aversion to them. We don't like them. Yes. Yet I guess voting is not about them. I don't know. I mean, apparently, it's I, just, I, on a national scale, I always look at it. and It's the lesser of two evils. Yeah, who's going to make it worse? Go with the other guy. Yeah, he's not going to make it better, but less worse. Well, and Hillary's smart here, or because her in this case, she's got to pull. If she if she can't pull the same uh, amount of minority votes that Obama was pulling, she's in trouble. Right. Because you know, people, the GOP are going to turn people out because they're. You know, they've, they're highly motivated. Now, can Hillary turn out the amount that Obama turned out? Mm. That's where she has to get some work done. She's got to get some work done. A massive data breach in December affected the Federal Human Resources Department that issues security clearances and holds employees' records, U.S. officials said on Thursday. The Washington Post reports that it was Chinese hackers who targeted the Office of Personnel Management and the Interior Department. We took all the potential threats of public and private sector systems seriously, and we will continue to investigate and hold accountable those who pose threats in cyberspace, said FBI investigators. Four million current and former employees' personal data may have been compromised. Like the largest ever. So every uh, security clearance employee data, I mean, these are people that that have a lot of access to a lot of important documents and important information, and now they may be compromised. These are even past, you know, cabinet members and Mm -hmm. past because, and they have to keep filling out these forms that say this is, but it's their bank accounts, it's their social security numbers, it's where they live, it's their family. I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing where an email shows up and says, don't make that decision because of this information we have on you. Right. Yeah, this is and where you can start leveraging people. Now, 
Uh, now, it's alleged that it's the Chinese hackers yeah. that are always blamed for everything. And they had a great uh, response to that. Yeah, they probably – I guess they, I didn't hear that. They, they were basically – They denied well, it. But. Well, they denied it in a very eloquent way. Oh. Like, quit chasing shadows okay. and, and the wind. This isn't – you know. But basically, they didn't deny it, but they said they denied it. In a denying fashion. In, the, in a non-denial <laughs> denial. But – this is an interesting – I don't think – I think this is the reality. It, we will never be protected from cyber anything. No. You can't protect it. You've got to basically – Someone will find a way. Yeah. And when it, you have entire teams of people sitting there around the clock just pounding away yeah. on some security system, they're going to find a breach. Something's going to happen, right. Yeah. So I'd either get used to it or just move to an island. Which I'm, I'm going to actually try that next week. <laughs> Just go hang out on an island. Go see if that works for you. Yeah. Just test it out. Just testing. Uh, the U.S. Air Force says it bombed an ISIS target in the Middle East based on a single social media post. Hmm. General, this is a good name, General Hawk Carlisle. Oh, he's a stud. You can tell. Said Monday that airmen in Florida with intelligence, surveillance, and the uh, recognizance group saw a Comment on a social media, I think it was an Instagram post, that turned into an airstrike on an ISIS command center. The guys that were working in our in our center, they're they're combing through social media and they see some moron standing at in this uh, commands post, and in some social media open forum bragging about the command and control capabilities. The building, they look at the details in the picture and they're like, oh, huh. I think I know where that is. And so they start looking and yeah, they confirmed it. And then oh, we within, know right where that within is. 24 hours, they leveled it. <laughs> this is why you've got to be careful with your social media. Right. I'm not sure if there was – sometimes your social media will have your location data, data attached to it. Yeah. So I don't know if they did that. Well, maybe well, – yeah, yeah, make sure you turn that off. Yeah, you can turn that off. I'm so, standing in front of the intelligence agency for ISIS. But so someone sent out a social media post and the military used that to call in airstrikes on this. Always make area. sure that you don't have air coordinates for missiles. <laughs> Don't make it that social easy. media. That's an option to turn off. Yeah, turn off that. I don't know why Apple even had the air uh, control. Missile. Yeah, why would they do targeting? that? I don't know. That's strange. It's, it's dangerous. It's a new app. They're testing it. <laughs> They'll shut it down. It's in beta. <laughs> Google's thinking of taking one over too. Hey, um, have you ever been in your job sitting there thinking, I hate my job. I've got to get out of this job. Maybe for years. And you just don't do anything. Have you had that just nagging feeling in the back of your head that, oh, I really need to do something different. I can't do it. I can't do it. But you're too afraid to have the risk. You're too afraid to take the risk. Today, we're going to be talking about not taking that risk, maybe the biggest or riskiest career move of all, and how sometimes in your career choices, you need to be a risk taker. Uh, Anna Creamer will be joining us, and she's done a lot of research, research on this, uh, is going to be enlightening us as to how to uh, manage your fear of risk and your desire to progress and move forward professionally. Interesting, interesting subject. Coming up right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in today's job market, it's constantly changing, isn't it? And it can be volatile. Think about it. Companies like Netflix, where were they five years ago? 
10 years ago. Uh, Google, when you when you think of what's happening with Google, with Apple, with all of this technology, new jobs exist today that didn't exist 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we had jobs that, that don't exist anymore. So it's, it's constantly in flux. So should you start looking for another job or should you just wait till you lose your job? <laughs> should you just anticipate things are changing? How do you take risks without taking risks? And is that even possible? Well, we're going to be talking about it with Ann Creamer. She wrote an article that uh, we, we loved and we wanted to, to bring onto the show. It's an article titled, Not Taking Risks is the Riskiest Career Move of All. And uh, the neat thing about Ann Creamer, she's, she's, she's done it all. Since the late 70s and early 80s, she was part of a team that distributed and co-produced Sesame Street all around the world. A few years later, she helped launch the, the magazine called Spy Magazine. You may have heard of that. And in the 1990s, she was the worldwide creative director for Nickelodeon and Nick at Night, where she created and launched Nickelodeon Magazine. She's, she's done a lot of changing on her own, and she has a soon-to-be-released uh, book that's coming out called Risk Reward. She's also the author of, of two other books, Going Gray and It's Always Personal. So we're excited to have Ann Creamer on the show with us today. Ann, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. And this it really is a fine balance, isn't it, between you know this sense that you want something different in your life, maybe a career move, a change, but then also managing the risk of it all. It is. I mean, one of the interesting things, when I was doing research for my last book about emotion in the workplace, this this notion of anxiety about career kept bubbling up. And I realized that the world that we live in today is so dramatically different from the world that I first went to work in, where there was this kind of social, uh, kind of corporate contract that employers had with employees, you come work for me, we'll train you, you'll get a pension, there'll be good benefits, all that kind of stuff has been fractured over the last decade um, with, you know, barely covering health care costs for employees, certainly no pensions, very few kind of contributions. And so I thought, well, what's that mean for the individual? What are the things that we can do that might help us learn to navigate these completely new waters? And so I partnered with um, J. Walter Thompson, the advertising agency, Mm. and created three national surveys because I kind of wanted to get a 100,000-foot level over what was going on with people in the workplace today. And the single thing I found the kind of most shocking is that at this moment, 50% of all people want to change not just their jobs, but their careers. Oh, wow. So the, think about that. Half the country getting out of bed this morning is going into work thinking, I'm not really digging this right now. This this whole career, this whole area. This I mean, it's I mean, you think you'd yeah. like your your you know your area of specialty, but just want a different company or a different angle. Yeah, and I think I think what you alluded to in the open, this sense of this kind of roiling, churning, changing workscape, right? makes people think that in that kind of class, well, the grass is greener somewhere else. If you've been doing your, you know, perfectly good job at your accounting firm or your, you know, medical practice or, you know, at your newspaper, radio station, whatever it is, and you hear about, you know, Facebook and the fun games going on there and the, you know, (laughs) equity that people get in the company stuff, you're thinking, I want a piece of that. How do I get a piece of that, right? Right. And so the other thing that came out about in my research is that, um, of all those people thinking about, you know, wanting to do something different, 
none of them know how to go about doing it. Interesting. So they're paralyzed, and they're paralyzed because they're terrified of starting over. They're paralyzed because there's this kind of behavioral economics sense of, uh, you know, you have your sunk fallacy cost. You, you know, you've put a lot of time in this career. What happens if you, lo- you know, you jettison it all yeah. overnight? You know, it's just a really complicated um, subject. Well, this probably then leads to there's a, a lot of research out there about just people that are no longer engaged. They just, I mean, I think it's like 70% of the workforce are no longer engaged at work. They're just not. They're not they're in. Not. They're just and I think, not I think in. That, I think this reflects, um, it's a kind of trickle down on some level from that broken, you know, sort of social compact which is that if we are as employees viewed as basically fungible parts on the pe- you know on the part of management you know yeah. that if there's a downturn in the economy you can be fired that there's no loyalty that there's no sense of kind of you know corporate benevolence well that's a very demotivating thing it's like well if you don't like me i, I you know i don't right. really care that much about you no well, that's true huh yeah yeah <laughs> you you're know? not going to invest in me then why am oh, i going to Spending all my waking hours, you know, here at the expense of my family, trying to deliver for you, you know, doing, you know, twice the job for half the kind of resources that I did, you know, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, you may um, be, you may be onto something. Re- I, to me, really scary though is fifty percent don't like their job. Um, they, they, they're just done with it. But they, but worse seems that they don't know what to do about it. So how? How emotionally destructive is having something you really don't like and being stuck in it? Well, that's hugely emotionally destructive. And that that's one of the reasons why I, I wrote this book, because, um, you know, I believe that coming off that old mindset, it used to be sort of well, almost like the ostrich. If you kind of duck and cover, you're pretty safe. No mm-hmm. one's going to notice you. Just keep doing your job and, like, everything will be okay. But the truth of the matter is, Everything isn't okay. I mean, you know, even in college universities, they're trying to kind of eliminate tenure. So there is no job security. In yeah. Government bureaucracies now, they're being tightened and, you know, constricted, and people are being laid off right and left. You know, you open the paper still, even post-Great Recession, and you're seeing, you know, 5,000 people being laid off here and there. And so, you, you know, complacency uh, is no longer an option. You, uh, you, you, you actually talk about uh, it's not an option because simply the reality is uh, you're you're pretty much only as good as you nowadays, right? It's it's you're yeah. your own brand. You are your own brand in that sense, but I also think you know I, I, one of I found when I did the research, looking sort of at the data, I had wanted to sort of see if there was anything that determined. The, separated the people who were more successful in these kind of ambiguous uh, working circumstances than others. And what I found is that um, there are kind of four basic types of people, and I break them into these quadrants called pioneers, thinkers, uh, defenders, and drifters. And the pioneers, which is the smallest group of all, it's only 10% of the population, actually made 17% more money on average, than everybody else, Hmm. than, you know, the other 90% of the country. And what they did differently from everybody else is they first, they put more chips on the table. They actually literally kind of are far more comfortable taking modest risks here and there, and it kind of builds their resiliency. Yeah. 
so that if they're doing something and it doesn't necessarily pan out, um, you know, they can pull themselves up and do something else. But the two other things that they did that were so different is that um, they answered the question, I use logic and analysis to make my decision, exactly the same as I trust my gut when I make a decision. Hmm. So this group of people could do the kind of, you know, competitive analyses and look at the situation, but they also had not lost touch with their instinct, with their intuition. They knew when and how to pull the trigger, either leaving something that was no longer satisfactory for them or diving into something new. Interesting. Does that that balance of, I guess, logic and intuition is that what helps them override their natural fear to just yes. do this thing? Yes, exactly right. You, you got it exactly right. What has happened to the rest of us, we've been so kind of conditioned to believe that, you know, analysis is the, is the sole thing that is relevant <laughs> in the workplace, right. that we've lost our respect yeah. um, for this. And in fact, Daniel Kahneman, you know, um, Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist, talks about these things and talks about luck and talks about timing. And like, they're not things to be diminished. I mean, you need this kind of healthy balance. It's neither, you know, uh, pioneers are kind of Goldilocks-ish in their ability to kind of not have too far one direction, too far the other. But the other thing that they did, and again, more than any other of the uh, groups, is they answered the question in the highest percentages of, sometimes I just do nothing at all. Oh, that's great. And everybody else works all the time time. And what that means is that they don't even have the opportunity to kind of raise their head above, you know, water and look around and even see what's possible. Mm. Oh, so, I want to be a pioneer. <laughs> well, you, you can be. You, you, I, I believe these are not fixed qualities in our lives. And right. we're, different, we're different at different stages of our lives. When you're younger, you know, and obviously there are young people who are risk-averse and there are old people who are, you know, daredevils. But by and large, you know, when you're younger, um, you're more willing to take certain kinds of risks because you don't have the obligations that come with families and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, you're not as um, tied down. Yeah, and, and, you know, when you're older, it can be similar, although older people, you know, in my, in my demo, uh, can be afraid that they don't, they don't know what's correct anymore, that they've kind of lost touch with their skills, that they mm. don't, you know, they're a little out of it, they're feeling ageism yeah. coming on, you know. But the most trapped population is that group, I would say, between kind of 35 and 55. Huh, my group. And that's the, yeah, well, <laughs> and that's the group that has families, kids, mm-hmm. colleges, mortgages, parents who are entering that kind of... Well, um, yeah, you know. we, and we've straddled the, the old world and the new world, the old world where you were guaranteed a, a job and a, and, and a pension and opportunity in the new world where you've got to go create it. Uh, we're talking with Ann Creamer. We're going we're gonna to come back and continue this discussion. D- discussion. She's the author of the soon-to-be-published book, Risk, Reward, about the unprecedented professional adaptability that's required, folks, for this new 21st century workplace and workforce. Uh, very, very interesting subject, interesting topic. More with Ann Creamer when we come back right here on The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, if you just had that fear, that risky uh, feeling that I don't want to just, uh, I've got to get out of my job, but I don't have another job. Have you ever done that? Have you just jumped ship, left without having another job ready? Uh, our guest today is Ann Creamer. If you go to her website, Ann Creamer, K-R-E-A-M-E-R, AnnCreamer.com, she has a poll on her website. Biggest single professional risk you've ever taken. 37% of the people that have that have voted in this poll, uh, their biggest risk was leaving a job before they had another one in their hand. Um, would you be willing to jump ship like that without another job in your hand? Would you be willing to go take you know, a little career move where you, you changed companies and, and it was less secure of a job? Would you be willing to just stop everything and go start your own business? All different risks. Would you be willing to switch your career altogether? It's a scary proposition. And yet staying in the place uh, and staying at your job might even be riskier than doing any of those other riskier, seemingly riskier activities. Ann Creamer is joining us. She is the author of this upcoming book, actually author of an article, Not Taking Risks in the Riskiest Career, maybe the Riskiest Career Move of All, and a new book coming out, Risk Reward. Um, and uh, and when is that book coming out, your new book, Risk Reward? I'm happy to say Tuesday, June 9th. Holy cow. Soon. Wow. <laughs> Soon, yeah. Was, now, I mean, that's an interesting thing because your career, you were all over the place. You've tried, you've done a lot of stuff from Sesame Street in the 70s to Nickelodeon. Did, did it all I, I, seem like it all made sense? In hindsight. Yeah. Uh, as we so often find, it, it did. I, you know, I, I, at one point I decided I was going to be a sort of, sort of expert in a variety of children's media. I was one of those people that, you know, I had friends, all of whom knew exactly what they were going to do when they yeah, got out of yeah, college. And yeah. they went and they had them, and I always felt kind of like a loser, you know, like, why don't I, why, <laughs> why am I always struggling with my identity and where, what I want to be when I grow up kind of thing? And um, what I realize now is that that kind of native curiosity, that kind of restless curiosity that informed me, um, I think is a, a competitive advantage today. Hmm. Um, and so I think that what I discovered is that, uh, you know, when I worked at Sesame Street, I became, you know, deeply enamored of children's media and entertainment and using media for educational purposes and all those kinds of things. And then I went to a textbook publishing company and you know, gain more mastery over what it meant in a kind of practical institutional setting. And then I went and worked at Nickelodeon and, you know, created a humor magazine. So I, it mm. all kind of added up, but I, it was working within, you know, television and book publishing and magazine publishing and things that are historically kind of had been siloed. And I think uh, in the 90s it began to break down so that cross-disciplinary knowledge became um, more of an asset as people began to kind of use all the different levers for reaching an audience yeah. simultaneously. And so, uh, you know, I, I can't pretend that there is intention, particularly right, right. In, in, in that path that I ended up taking, but the net result was it gave me a kind of very good overview of different kinds of um, businesses that could reach different kinds of audiences. It seems interesting that you said in retrospect, and you know, in hindsight, it, it seemed balanced, and, and yet... In the moment, each one was probably a riskier move, kind of a different direction. How how do we 
get rid of kind of the job clinging, like it's almost like static cling, right? And you're mm-hmm, just your yes. pants stuck to your leg. That's us stuck to our jobs. What are some things you suggest we do to be able to mitigate the fear, the risk, and, and get out there and just more yeah. follow follow the path, which hopefully in hindsight would all seem to be congruent and integrated? A hundred percent. And in fact, you know, one of the great insights that I, one of the great sort of things I came across when I was working on the book is that, you know, change leads to insight more frequently than insight leads to change. So what I advocate is not that you go in and, you know, quit your job tomorrow, because I think that actually is a very um, tough road to hoe for a lot of people because of, you know, financial obligations. But I think that you can create in a daily life, um, sort of habits, a philosophy of approaching your work that embraces risks large and small of different sorts. So, you know, one of the things that I think that you can do is to create, um, you know, a kind of uh, network of people. The, the, the things that drive new opportunities, interestingly enough, they've found in research, are not the people that you work with in your industry, but it's mm. the loose association of people. And so, um, you know, you might have a hobby or something, and this also nourishes that sort of part of yourself that can give you the space to think about work in a different way. So let's say you join a knitting circle or something. Well, in that knitting circle, you might be talking to a woman who works in a completely different field, and you're saying, I'm thinking about this, and she goes, oh, well, there's an opportunity. So you build a network of people. You actually get outside of your usual suspects. You can go to a, you know, a film group. You can go to a, take a course at a local college. There are a lot of things you can do that just purely that step, that action, that movement, that doing of something kind of proactive in service of your, um, you know, per- personal trajectory. It kind of diversifies you know, your network, really, is it, what you're saying. It, it diversifies your network. Then I think you co- sort of... Um, you know, take uh, – I, whenever I tell people who are unhappy with their work, I would say one of the best things you can do is you can go into a largest bookstore in your area and go into the nonfiction area and start just pulling the books that pique your interest, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you go back and you sit down and you look at them. And maybe it's woodworking, maybe it's, you know, gardening, maybe it's uh, accounting. I don't know what it will be for you. But pull them out and think about them, and then try and with each one and sort of winnow it down, let's say, to five. And over the next month, you can, for each of those five different subject areas, you can find somebody in your community who actually does something kindred or like you've identified, and you actually figure out a way to call them up Mm -hmm. and um, just have a cup of coffee with them begin to explore it. Is there a place that you could volunteer if somebody's doing something in a, you know, uh, pro-social kind of way that has interest to you? And you volunteer and eventually you find out, oh, heck, they need a new, um, you know, general manager or they need a, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, a, a young woman, I wrote about her for Harvard Business Review also. She was at uh, Portland State College. She sent 2,000 letters to people for a summer internship with you know, three things she wanted to do. She wanted to be a inspiration or plus size model. She wanted to work in media and she wanted to help empower women. Hmm. And of those 2,000 she sent, 50 people answered her back. And of the 50 people who answered her back, six of us actually said, sure, we'll meet with you. And she ended up getting, you know, two fabulous summer internships out of those six wow. people. But, so, but she first cast her net really wide. Yeah, She was not 
you know, undone by the fact that, you know, uh, 19 <laughs> yeah, ninety people yeah. didn't respond. That's amazing. Um, and, but she was also specific about her interest levels. So, you know, I find that when you go to talk to people, it's important, you know, you can't just go to somebody and say, well, I'm really interested in the media. You know, I say to them when they come to me like that, well, is it kids' media? Is it gardening? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, is it journalism? Is it this? Is it like vice media or is it like, you know, Time Warner? Me-? You know, mm-hmm. you, you have to kind of do the hard work on your own to winnow the broader interest into something that has some degree of specificity so somebody can talk with you yeah. about it. Well, and, and, cause, and, and then eventually broaden it into a passion because I, I have a lot of people that want to come meet uh, meet with me and they love what I do and they want to do what I do and then we meet and we talk about it and then I just give them some assignments and then I'll even mentor them and help them and invariably if they don't have the passion mm-hmm. they just yes. fade yes it's true and and you know that that ties to kind of where you where you are in your sweet spot for work, and I think this connects with a lot of people who are feeling that kind of sense of trapped and boredom in mm-hmm. their work is because they are bored. Yeah. They have mastered the skills, um, and you know you work at your optimal best when there when your work is a challenge, when you have a, a natural interest level in it, when it kind of connects again with that sort of innate curious part of your brain that resonates with you personally. Yeah. Um, but not when it's too hard. If it's too hard, you sort of shut down, and if it's too easy, you shut down. So that's another reason why I advocate this kind of constant sense of, it's not self-improvement, because that sounds like homework. Right. It's like letting your your natural interests guide you to um, finding different modes of work that you find engaging. See, that's it. I mean, I, part of it, that is, you. that seems like the big battle, huh? The battle between... Uh, being too overwhelmed yes. or too underwhelmed. Yes. And it's, um, I guess that is the sweet spot, huh? It is the sweet spot. And within your, you know, and when you're in that, you know, you, you want to be going for a bit of a reach. You want to, you know, um, the amateur spirit, this kind of wonderful sense of, you know, the Benjamin Franklin kind of, I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to be a printer and I'm going to be, a, you know, uh, sort of a citizen scientist, and I'm going to do these things. And so you, as individuals today, I think we kind of need to recapture a bit of that mm. sense of having a variety of things of interest that we're pursuing. And most people say, but I don't have time, I don't have time. And mm-hmm. my argument would be, you have to make the time, because if you don't make the time, you know, and I understand, we all have kids and obligations, and but carve out the half hour a day that lets you connect to that thing that is motivating you, and I guarantee you that if you begin to follow that sort of strand um, forward, it will lead you to your next sort of job yeah. in one capacity or another. We again are talking with Ann Creamer, author of a, an HBR, a Harvard Business Review um, article called uh, "Not Taking Res- Not Taking Risks Is the Riskiest Career Move of All." In there, and you also mention kind of this dichotomistic. Uh, thinking we do this either or we I mean, you don't specifically mention mm-hmm. it as that but it's this tendency to make it we're binary one choice or another either i yeah. stay or i go either i love yeah. it or i hate it um, talk about that how do we manage that that kind of simplistic mind of ours well i i, I think a lot by what i was just talking about i mean i've, I've been self-employed now for almost 20 years and one of the philosophies that i developed in that sort of period of time is, 
I cannot have all my chickens and you know eggs in one basket. So I always have multiple different projects at various stages of development because everything is, takes like twice as long as it should in this world too. For mm-hmm. all the frenetic activity that we're all going through, you know, it takes a you know a million years for people to make decisions. Yeah. So if you kind of tee up, uh, you know, a couple of different kinds of projects simultaneously, you can still be doing your day job. You can still be going in and you know doing exactly what you've been doing. But you can develop on the side, and in fact, 53 million of us now, uh, 34% of the population, say that they, in some capacity, believe that they are self-employed. Hmm. So wow. that's a huge number. That it's is. going to grow to 60 million, they say, by 2020. And then, you know, this is our future. So we're all going to have kind of, you know, perhaps the nine-to-fives that, you know, pay our rent. Right. Um, but we're going to be developing in tandem on a parallel course some other interests so that if you are like the editor that I talked about in um, the HBR piece and at the age of 50 is the sole breadwinner in your family, you're fired. Yeah. You have something that you can turn to almost immediately and say, well, I've been working on this for the last six months, five years. Um, I feel pretty good about, yeah. about what I've been doing on that. I, I, can, I can see going down this path as a, as a possible income source. It's, it, really, I, it, it really is the new future. And it's also, I think, um, it's, it's the switch you have to make where it's no longer the government or your company that's going to provide you that security. It's your skill set. It's your talents. It's your creativity. It's you. It is. And, and, you know, I believe, you know, someone graduating from college today, they're anticipated to have 15 different jobs mm-hmm. or careers during the course of their working lives. And the people I surveyed, 70-year-olds said they thought they would be working until they're 90. Wow. So even if you're, I'm, I'm just about to turn 60, even if you're my age, you might have two different careers still in front of you yeah. at this age. Yeah. Because... We all believe, and I think the important thing is not to view that so much as a burden, but to kind of go back to that, you know, Benjamin Franklin amateur spirit kind of a thing, that it's an opportunity to, you know, stay engaged, to stay socially connected, to keep earning money, to be a viable part of your community, all those kinds of things that we now know from research keep you vibrant as you age. Um, So work isn't a negative, but it's, you know, it's hard, it's, it's hard. You have to have a lot of sort of plates, uh, I believe, spinning um, so that you can remain nimble. That's right. We have to master spin, don't we? We have to. <laughs> but not the not, traditional. Not the not, yeah, spin. not the PR spin, but the plate spinning spin. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Anne, we appreciate you. It really is a great article. I can't uh, recommend it more On at HBR.org. If you go there and look up Not Taking Risks is the riskiest career move of all. But special uh, special thanks to you and good luck on June 9th, the release of your new book, Risk Reward. Uh, it really is. It's, it's so needed, Anne, and we appreciate it. Uh, your great insight. Really, there's, she's got a bunch of wonderful books. Going Gray is another wonderful book. What I Learned About Beauty, Sex, Work, Motherhood, Authenticity, and Everything Else That Matters. Another great book there by Ann Creamer. We'll take a break, come back to a quick Coach's Corner. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as we've been talking about your career and risk and reward, you know, there's something about passion in what you do, and it makes a huge, huge difference. And so in this Coach's Corner segment, I wanted to talk about a man who um, who had and has incredible passion in what he does. So I, I was talking earlier in the show about how my son had just graduated from high school. He made it. He finally did it. 18 years. Proud of him. Uh, my son, Tanner. And um, it all began, though, back in elementary school. We, you know, we had, Tanner's our third child. We had taken, had two other children, taken them to kindergarten. It was such an exciting moment. Dropped them off. They were so happy. Loved going to school. Loved going to kindergarten. And we thought Tanner would be exactly the same. We thought he would just eat it up and, um, you know, every, every other sign said that Tanner would love it. So we took our cute little Tanner uh, to kindergarten. I mean, he'd even gone to preschool, nailed it, loved it, took him to kindergarten, dropped him off on the first day, actually pulled up on the first day, and it went crazy. He was going to have none of that. He was not going to get out of the van. He did not want to do it. Fought us, fought us, fought us. We carried him in, sat down. He wouldn't stop clinging to us. It was all over us. And it was interesting. I mean, it was like, what? What is going on? And, you know, as a parent, you're like, come on, just just go, just go. And you're basically tearing your child off of your leg and throwing you toward the mean teacher. So we did this every morning for his first week. And then we'd end up staying, and, and, we, and every time we tried to leave, he'd chase us down and scream and cry and cry and cry, lots of stress, lots of anxiety. We went and met with the school counselor, and the school counselor says, you know, he has a little social anxiety. The big key is you just need to just leave him and go. You just need to get out of here, and we'll take care of it. And then that's hard as a parent because you're like, oh, I don't want to leave my son, and da da da, da. So finally, they, we just created this plan where we were going to pull up in our car and open the door. And basically, they were going to grab our kid out of the car. Now, who do you have grabbed the child out of the car? Well, the principal. The principal of this school was David Vicciarelli. And he was the greatest man ever. And so when I think of somebody that had passion for his job, he loved these kids. And he would stand at the front of this elementary school, and he just helped us get Tanner out of the car every day basically for a year. For the first little while, he'd go kicking and screaming, but eventually, really quickly actually, within a week or so, David Vicciarelli, Dr. Vicciarelli would open the door. He'd say, hey, Tanner. Tanner would look at him like, ugh. And they'd walk into Dr. Vicciarelli's office. Dr. Vicciarelli would sit him down. They'd talk for a few minutes, and he'd say, whenever you're ready, and he'd give him a candy, and he'd say, whenever you're ready, we'll go into your class. And then Tanner would say, I'm ready. And then they'd walk into the class. That happened for the rest of the year, basically. Dr. Vicciarelli, one man, changed my little boy's life. And I remember when he uh, left elementary school, um, it was like we were so appreciative. Actually, Dr. Vicciarelli changed schools. And when he was leaving, we said, Tanner loves you. You need to always know that. We'll invite you to his graduation. Lo and behold, my son just graduated. And... At a, at a party for the high school kids, 
somebody comes up to my son and says, are you Tanner Townsend? And he says, yes. And he he says, I'm David Vicerelli, Dr. Vicerelli. And he came up and found my son as an 18-year-old boy who had overcome that anxiety and had graduated and was graduating and is now was really good at you know social situations and anxiety and is handling his anxiety and dealing with it. And Dr. David Vicerelli, one person, you know, changed a life immensely. That is the passion we all need in our career, where you, sure, you can change different locations, but Dr. Vicerelli chased down my son, not only when he was a preschooler, kindergartner, but also he came back to chase down my son as an 18-year-old to see full circle what had happened. Folks, when you're in your when you're in the the role you're supposed to be doing, it doesn't matter what the role is. Not everybody's going to be an Oprah. Not everybody's going to be a president of the United States. You might just be a teacher or a principal, but you're changing people's lives. Like Dr. Vicerelli changed my son Tanner's life. He changed our entire family's life. For us, he will always be held up as an iconic example of somebody of passion that just is doing what's right. And he is a, is a fantastic role model. You all have the ability to do that at your own work and your own workplace. When you are doing what you do uniquely well, it doesn't matter what the job is. You're offering something to the rest of the people around us. One of the reasons why so many of us are down and out about our jobs is because we're dealing every day with so many people that are down and frustrated with their jobs. So will you please just take the challenge that Ann Creamer gave you and I'm giving you right now. Let's go find our passion. You don't have to leave everything and go start it. Just go start it casually. Go start finding other ways to figure out what your song is that you need to bring to this great uh, big ball of mud. Dr. Vicerelli, thank you for uh, being a, a wonderful role model for my son and for my family. Uh, truly, you are a hero of our family. We're going to take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour with a whole new show right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the show. I'm your coach, Dr. Matt Townsend, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you the tools you need to uh, to lead your own life, heaven forbid. We don't just want to bring you the latest news. We do. We'll get you that information. But on top of it, we want to give you solutions, skills, ideas, tools, family guidance, job guidance, you know. A little bit of everything. Touch them all, we call it. Touch them all! Anyway. Um, like your son. Like my son, who had an, uh, a walk-off home run. I mean, that is the coolest moment, because he doesn't hit home runs. He usually just gets hit with the ball when they're pitching it. <laughs> or he he's a good hitter, but cracked it. Won the game. Walk-off homer. That is like That is, for a parent, just a magical moment. And then it's interesting to deal with his emotion about it. He just wanted to get in and go sit on the bench and have everyone leave him alone. Yeah. <laughs> My little brother played Little League football. Yeah. One of the most unathletic people I know. 
and he, he survived. And, and so w- the way Little League football works is they have so many people on the team. You have the good players, but then you have the guys that are not so good, but everybody has to play because it's Little League and you've paid, and so everyone gets so many plays. Yeah. So it's the end of the game, the tie game. They ha- My brother doesn't have all those plays yet. So they toss him in. He's on the side as a receiver. Uh-huh. He's slow. He doesn't oh, run boy. well. Oh, no. And they go, well, we'll just put him here. He'll get his play. And they tell him, just block that guy. Don't do anything else. So my brother ran, for whatever reason, he blocked the guy and then kept moving down the field, ended up in the end zone, and the quarterback was desperate, so he just lobbed it up, and my brother sort of fell. Caught it. Everybody else would have dove. Yeah. Made it looked like yeah. really heroic and everything. Yeah. My brother just sort of tripped and fell, caught the ball, <laughs> crossed the line, and scored the winning touchdown. Huge. And I'm sitting there watching this, and I'm like, they're not doing No, no. And, caught, and they you know. gang pile. And yeah, then... we went nuts, and he caught the football. But it's That's that moment, so cool. and, and yeah. you have that moment yeah. the rest of your life, That's and right. you did it. Wait till it's your kid. Oh, yeah. Because then you like, because you know that that has just, that's a memory in his head that he'll use the rest of his life. I was a, as we've talked about before, an overweight offensive lineman. Yeah. And they gave me the football one game. It was a blowout. Hey, give it to the big kid. We're up by 50 points. I beg this student coach (laughs) that's there like, come on, man, let me do it. He's all right. So he puts me in. And there's a video. We still have it. And you hear my mom just screaming. She has no idea what's happening, but they give me the football. Don't give him the ball. (laughs) I am the slowest running back on the face of the planet. Did it look like it was in slow motion? It was. And there was like the whole team's hanging off of me and I'm just trudging along because (laughs) they couldn't knock me down. I have a career average 10 yards per carry. One carry, 10 yards. You got 10 yards. And then then they gave it to me the next play, another 10. And then the quarterback fumbled the next handoff, which would have been a touchdown because they could stop me. I was running all day on those guys. You, you were well, running wa- I, I was walking, two times. I was walking all day on those guys. Well, and you were strong enough to drag them. Yeah. That's a huge thing. That's really it. It's hard to drag a line. <laughs> you were like a freight train. Yeah. But it's that those used moments. to be his name, Terry Freight Train So South. like 20 <laughs> years down the line, your kids are going to go, remember that day I hit the walk-off home oh, run? That's so cool. That's so cool. Every one of my kids has had a moment like that, and you're just like, see? There it is. Did you video it? We we didn't video him. The hit, we videoed the... The, the after? Two minutes, I, two seconds after the hit. Oh, okay. Video. It was cool. Did he take a, his time going around the bases, or uh-huh. did he just run? He did ran. He? Well, he ran pretty fast. Because you can showboat, really. Yeah, he didn't showboat, but he... <laughs> and then all, everybody just attacked him on... I I didn't realize the score was... And I didn't realize it was the bottom of I, I, that it was the last stops. I didn't. I don't know why. I well, mean, you told us too, before when you watch your kids, sometimes you'll have music. And yeah. Well, and I was just standing right there, and oh, I'm okay. like, "Come on, dude, just crack it." And anyway, but it was weird. I just didn't know that it was that moment. Yeah. And then crack. It was cool. That's one of those parenting moments. Yeah, it's good to see him succeed. But it's interesting too, and it's going to apply to what we're talking about. He's our third child, so the middle child sometimes gets forgotten. Actually, he's our fourth child. Sometimes gets forgotten because yeah. we have six. Tell me about it. So he, we always call him the oldest of the young'uns. Mm. And anyway, anyway well, today we'll be talking about birth order. Does it really matter? Because there's like been a thousand studies on it, and it's inconclusive. So we'll talk about birth order coming up. There's so with, many different factors when it yeah. comes to how, how they're raised and well, how yeah. do they deal with the and, rest of their siblings. And is it more just the, the parents and or is it more just the personalities they're born no. with? Anyway, stuff like that. Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn will be joining us to talk about that. But first. I want to congratulate you. Yes. This day seems made just for you. This. National Donut Day. Oh, yes. 
This is a good day. This is, I think, my favorite day. Now, there's a charitable aspect to it, but I think it's really about celebrating donuts. Well, why? No, charity schmerity. Well, yeah. It's really just for us. Because the, 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 there's actually a story. A lot of times there's just sort of it's a day. It's a day. And there's no real story behind it. This one is uh, a doctor in the military during the First World War sought to brighten the days of the wounded soldiers he worked on. On his first day to the military base he was assigned to, he purchased eight dozen donuts and gave one to each soldier he worked on, brightening their day as he was, you know, pulling Oh, what a great guy. And so since then, the, uh, the Salvation Army has uh, sent volunteers. Uh, later on, it, it turned into a fundraising thing. The Salvation Army got involved. They sent 250 volunteers to France to help put these uh, uh, better their huts. They're trying, he was trying to raise money in this fundraiser to have better facilities to treat the wounded. Oh, really? And so it turned into uh, the the Salvation Army came and set up these huts. They, they gave away 300 donuts in one day Holy as part of cow. their service. So it, it kind of started growing and it turned into a thing. And so now it's it's eat a donut, but also donate to a charity and try well, to benefit others that way. Let's do this. Um Everybody go out and buy a dozen donuts, sell them for a buck a donut, and then give that money to charity. There you go. I mean, maybe that's illegal. Could be. But I know what I know about Don, our boss, Don Shaline. Yes. Don loves a charity, A, and B, loves his people. So I bet you bucks we'll have donuts today. Could be. Especially if he's listening. Donuts. I mean, it's just, donut day. Just pull over and get some. Just a hint. He has, he's had brownies on a Friday. He, he can just go the right first here Friday I was creamer. here, he walked out and he goes, we made it, it's Friday. I know. And then he had brownies. I'm like, whoa. I know. So today's donut day. Today's donut day. Donuts. Donuts. On Thursday, doctors at Houston's MD Anderson Cancer Center and Houston Methodist Hospital announced the first partial skull and scalp transplant. Hmm. Really? Performed on Jim Boyson, 55, a software engineer from Austin. He also received a kidney pancreas transplant, his second since 1982. So he had a busy day under the hood, if he, you will. He got a kidney, a skull, and a scalp. After the first transplant, he developed cancer in the muscle under his forehead, huh. and the organ rejection suppression medicine prevented healing of the wounds from treating that cancer. Uh, Boyson appears to be taking his new skull and, and scalp in stride. He says it's kind of shocking. Really, I don't know how they got it. He says he'll he'll have way more hair than he had when he was twenty one. <laughs> he's got, he's got a new scalp. But is this is this from his own genes? So are they growing these things from his genes so they don't reject them, or are they just growing them from something else? It it's a tr- well, it's a transplant. Oh so my heavens! They put somebody else's. Head or oh, it was a full transplant. I thought yeah. they were growing them. That's interesting because imagine the day that we can transplant everything. It is kind of odd. We've already had head transplants. At the moment, he's got kind of the Frankenstein stitches yeah. around his forehead and yeah. everything. But um, but you got watch him just come out with this big afro. <laughs> whatever, yeah. Man, Larry. So that's interesting. Your hair looks fantastic. Partial, that's skull, great. partial skull and scalp transplant. Transplant. That's cool. Congratulations to him. And it's donut day. And they, uh, this one I read, I found this interesting. An investigation from the Commerce Department Inspector General's Office has revealed that after his retirement, a National Weather Service official created a job description and salary for a consultant position. The official then returned to work to do that very job, which gave him an extra $43,000 from his previous post. 
So the 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 employee he retires hires bef- and before he retires he creates a consulting job availability <laughs> that, that he is, retires then comes back the next day and fills the consulting job that gives him a forty three thousand dollar raise. Brilliant, that's brilliant. Does he work for the government? Right, yeah, absolutely. Problem, yeah, that explains it. The Washington Post has the story. Says, but as the investigation continued, the inspector general eventually agreed with the man with the man's lawyer saying that he didn't do anything wrong by taking the job. The investigation revealed that the practice is common in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. It's common in the entire government. The Post notes that by the time the man was fired, 21 months after accepting the consultant position, because people went, hey, wait a second. Hey, you can't. Hey. He had received another $471,000 in salary from the government. Wow. So retirement. But that actually happens everywhere. I guess not even that's happening in every company where, you know, you work 30 years at your job, you get really good at it. They don't necessarily want to keep paying you full benefits. So you retire, take full retirement, and then go get the same job without benefits. You're a consultant. 1099. You end up making more on your paycheck because yeah. they don't have to pay your yeah. That's right. And you've already got I mean you can go get now you've got Obamacare. Bada boom, bada bing. There you go. But then it's tax dollars, so they were questioning what the legality of it, and it, it yeah. looks kind of shady. It but looks shady. Apparently, he didn't break any rules. But I'm going to do it here. I'm going to retire, and then I'm going to apply for my job <laughs> as a consultant. As a consultant, and I'm going to charge five times more, and they won't pay it, and they'll be like, "We don't even need to replace you, Matt. We've got Jimmy Birdsall, the boy you raised from a, just a little seed." that we planted in the garden. Interesting stuff, folks. Uh, does birth matter really matter? Does birth order really matter? Does it matter if you're the oldest or the youngest in the family? You always hear all of those you know, myths. Are they real myths or is there real research behind it? Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn will be joining us and uh, she's going to help us understand what's really going on when it comes to birth order, what should you pay attention to, and what doesn't matter at all. That's up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, uh, to the show. You know, you probably heard that stereotype that the oldest kids are the most responsible. The middle child are usually the ones we ignore, but are the peacemakers, right? And those youngest children of ours tend to be the class clowns, maybe the go-getters. But are those stereotypes accurate? And what about step-siblings and the only child? What about the Brady Bunch, you know, families? In fact, when you think about it, who really was the oldest, Marsha or Greg? Do you even know on the Brady Bunch? According to Huffington Post, since the 1970s, there have been over 1,000 scientific studies on birth order. The research, however, has followed a pattern of being accepted and rejected over the years. Joining us now to shed some light on the research is Dr. Susan Whitborn, a professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Dr. Whitborn, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. It's nice to be back. Great to have you back, uh, one of our favorite guests, because you just make sense of all the crazy psychobabble. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I try. <laughs> well, you do a great job. And again, you write for Psychology Today, right? And Huffington Post as well. 
That's correct. You're quite busy. I am. I know. Tell me about it. <laughs> hey. And I try to do research, too. Do so. you really? You're trying to do <laughs> yeah. it all. You need. You know what, Susan? You need a break. I know. I know. You just need a good vacation. So, <laughs> so, uh, where? What is the truth about these? The birth order. Does it really matter if you're oldest, youngest, middle? What What have you found? It is such a complex area. I mean, even your intro, you just said, what about the Brady Bunch? What about right. you know, step families? And um, I mean, no one's ever really been able to pin it down um, on a statistical basis of actual birth order and actual personality trends. Out of a hundred, out of a thousand studies, too. So they're trying. Oh yeah. But there's I mean, just no, there's no pinning it down. It's, no, and there's no end to the amount of research on this and interest in it. And I think it's part of, oh, you know, we're always looking for explanations from, how shall I say it, uh, outside of ourselves. Mm. I mean, you have no control over your birth order. Right. It is what it is. So yeah. just like your genetics and, you know, the, on and on, evolution, I mean, it goes on and on and on, the way people try to relate personality to something from outside of the individual. Right. Um, so this is just one of them. <clears throat> but uh, I, what the research is, is showing, though, is that it's not the actual birth order, but the perceived birth order that becomes more important. That, now, that's, that's fascinating because what it, I guess, is saying is that however you're born, you might take on a, a certain identity, you know, the go-getter, you know, maybe the, the clown. <laughs> Yeah, but 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 see too. I mean that that's it's a it's a perceived state of being versus just the actual numeric placement in the family. That's right, and I mean that's not to say that you made up this perception. Right. This is a perception given to you, um, starting when you're young, um, just the way so many of our social roles get uh, kind of handed down from the family uh, to the individual. So for whatever reason, you get this perception, and now you start to behave in that way. And that's what's how birth order is going to affect you. It's interesting. Because I didn't think of that, but we do this in our family, and it's not healthy, I'm sure. But it's like, oh, yeah, that you got that from the Townsend side, or you got that from the priest side. And all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're basically saying, oh, yeah, this is the trait that is from that family – but in reality, I'm assigning it to him be- yeah, because and- I'm, not even ne- I'm not necessarily even measuring a real trait. I'm measuring my perception of them and trait. Yes. And then, I mean, it's not to say that psychologists don't do this as well. Yeah, that's no, true. <laughs> I think everybody's prone to that, seeing other people in our children or yeah. ourselves yeah. um, that we're related to. Um, but, you know, how, how w- would you identify that trait if you didn't know that somebody else had that trait as well? In other words, once we start to label things um, by the way people remind us of other people, it's done. Mm. You know, and then it's, there's no question, no questioning anymore. Is there, is there any use to even trying to, you know, figure out the birth order phenomenon. I mean, is there any value to that? Or is it, would it be better to just assume individuals are individuals and figure them out? Yeah, I, I think it's a complete, complete waste of time. Yeah, no. <laughs> and it, it just boggles the mind how much research there is on it. And it all comes down to a guy named Alfred Adler, um, yep. a, uh, one of Freud's disciples. Oh boy, who, here we go. <laughs> yep. Somebody had to follow he, Freud, yeah. 
he didn't really end up agreeing with Freud. He placed much more emphasis on the family and the and these roles, but he himself was affected by birth order and he himself was labeled inferior compared to his brother. Hmm. And that was something that stuck with him throughout his life. But then it turned into his theory, and then it turned into all this research. Was he a middle child? Uh, no, uh, younger. Oh, was he a younger child? I think there was only one older brother, and he was sickly when he was young, so that yeah. didn't help the situation See, uh, th- that's it. So there's a perfect example. So was he inferior because he was the younger child? Was he inferior because he was sickly? Was he inferior because he was born back when we didn't probably have an understanding of personality traits or introversion, extroversion, all these other issues? I mean, was he there because of their economic status? Was he there because of the education levels of his parents? You know, I mean, was was dad too busy working, you know, in a mine that he couldn't go spend time with his sickly boy? I mean, there's so many other variables Mm -hmm. that we can't can't play the game of. It's just a number. But it's it's just interesting to trace this all back to this one guy's theory. Um, but for it to be popular, obviously it has to resonate with people. Yeah. So it can't just be some, you know, weird theory out there. Mm-hmm. It's um, something that people can relate to. And I, I think it's part of that kind of looking for things outside yourself to explain yourself. And and therefore, you can blame those other factors when you're unhappy with something about yourself. Oh, it's not my fault. <laughs> no, that's you know, true. That's totally true. <laughs> yeah. I'm the youngest. Or uh, I have a client who blames the fact that she was um, – her parents got pregnant and then got married. And so she was the reason her parents had to get married and then oh. they divorced. So she's obviously wasn't wanted. Uh, and you're like, wow. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. And it's a lot that's to a kind lot. of base your entire identity on, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and that's the thing is these labels early in life do stick with us Yeah. for a long time and become – I think in some ways the earlier we're exposed to them, the more they become this part of our identity that we don't even question. Hmm. And then – in a way, we're stuck because we, we did this on our drive. We had a child graduate from high school yesterday, and on the on the drive home, we were all sitting there saying, oh, uh, yeah, so Tanner's a lot like – Tanner's a mix of Sarah and Jake, and Josh is a mix of just Jake. And, and we're like literally – we're comparing all of our kids to these certain types of people. And then in the end, we I guess we overlook the fact that, no, you're all pretty unique. Yeah. No, it sounds like you came to that recognition, though. Well, yeah, um, but, you know. Yeah, it's a fun game to play. It you is. Know? And it, uh, I do think, though, that that perceived role, just to get back to that, um, I think that's where the 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 key is going to be in finding a connection between birth order and personality. It's going to be you took on this role we call we give it a name of birth order, but we really mean something else um, because you know family dynamics. We know how powerful of an influence this is on personality, and so the quote unquote birth order becomes this family dynamic indicator uh, yeah. that shows where you are with your siblings, but even perhaps with your parents. No, that's true. I mean, and so it's more role taking than it is ordering. It's everyone has certain roles. You mean. You might be the first born male that has a certain role to, you know, uh, 
go be the 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 one that paves the way. You might be the first female, which historically may have meant you were going to do more caring for the younger kids. I mean, it's uh-huh. interesting. It's more role taking. Let's um, let's take a break again. We're talking with Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn, uh, and she's trying to do the best she can to help us understand this birth order idea. I mean, it's it's truly researched and it resonates. And yet some of it, a lot of it might just be pure myth or perception. And we, we tend to, to like it because it gives us some insight into who we are as, as people. We'll take a break, come back and continue to discuss this, see if we can make more sense of it. You be thinking uh, during the break, though, uh, is it more just about the roles you played as a child than it is really about the number where you were born? This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the show uh, brought to you by the Golden Boy, the number four child of uh, with three sisters. I'm the baby. My sisters called me the golden child. They said there's nothing I could ever do wrong in the eyes of my parents. I was perfect. Everything handed to me, spoon-fed on a golden spoon. From a golden platter. Spoiled rotten. And loving every minute of it. We're speaking with Dr. Susan Krauss-Whitborn from University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's currently a professor of psychological and brain sciences there. And is uh, also a a, a writer for the Huffington Post, Post 50 blog. A frequent commentator, by the way, on a lot of shows. She's been on Dateline and CNN, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, holy cow, she's been everywhere, and uh, today she's on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, Susan. Thank you, Matt. It's always great to be here. Hey, where do you you fit? Those kind words. Pardon? Where do you fit in the family? Uh Uh-huh. I was wondering if you were going to get to this. Got to ask you. (laughs) Well, I could ask you to guess. Okay, I'm going to guess a professor. You're you're probably, okay, let me think. You're the oldest. I bet you're the oldest. I bet I'm not. Are you a baby? I'm a baby. Well, there were only two, so yeah. yes. You were the baby I, then. I'm the baby. See, you, I was a baby. Who is your older sibling, a brother or sister? Yes. Brother. A brother, yep. Interesting. Were you yep. spoiled rotten like I was? Um, who? It depends who you ask. Okay. <laughs> if, if you ask him, he, yes. You totally were. But if I ask you? Not no. so much, no. See, I know why I was spoiled. My sisters think I was spoiled because I was just the fourth child, but I was spoiled because they wore my mom out. Uh-huh. She was exhausted. So it wasn't spoiled. It was actually just, uh, I don't know, she just basically left me alone. Oh. But in a good way. It was great for me. Well, so it sounds like you were well taken care of, though, by yeah. attentive older sisters. That was it. And, but see, that's the perception of it, isn't it, that... They they had to work harder for me than I did for them. So they thought I was just spoiled. Mm-hmm. But they kept telling me I'm the golden boy. And as the golden boy, I actually started believing it. That's right. Well, um, I mean, they were uh, encouraging the very behavior they were trying to discourage. That's exactly right. The old, All families. 
That's that's exactly how it works. Huh? Talk about we're 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 talking about birth order and is it really destiny? And and the the thing I'm hearing here uh, from Doctor Susan Whitborn is simply the idea that there's been a ton of research, about a thousand studies so far, and yet in the end, it's much more complicated than a numbering system to determine who you really are and how you're going to turn out. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, what I pointed out in the blog, if people want to read it uh, to get more details on the basis for saying this, um, it is called It's Birth Order Destiny and the subtitle, Why You Shouldn't Let Stereotypes Dictate Your Fate. There you go. And that's on Psychology Today. So if you yeah. just look up Is Birth Order Destiny and yeah. Psychology Today, you'll be right there on it. That's right. Um, um, but it shouldn't. That's the key, huh? It shouldn't, it shouldn't determine our fate. No, and I, I, you're not going to be able, to, though, to go backwards and change everything and unravel all the little knots that got tied up. But by getting some insight into where this perception came from, you can learn a lot about yourself and your family, and, and you can learn that you don't have to accept a stereotype that's been limiting you throughout your adult life. You can question it and see where it was coming from and also gain insight into what your brothers and sisters, or if you're an only child, uh, what what your parents have have seen, what you mean to them. Yeah, it's it, it's it's almost like we think with, that everything's either a benefit or a deficit, a benefit or, or a deficit. But in your article, you talk about um, the confluence model. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you mentioned though is that firstborns tend to be teachers, and the laterborns tend to be learners. But in reality, the benefit of learning is to both, the teacher and the learner, really. That's right. That's right. So it doesn't matter necessarily where you came. That's right. And and a lot then depends on um, what the skills are that are valued in the family or even the situation. I mean, there's there's cooking, there's doing stuff around the house, there's chores, um, there's, there's schoolwork. So you could be a teacher in one area and a follower and, or, or learner in the other. And and I guess yeah, that's interesting because maybe it, the, the, one of the advantages to being the older children is you might be doing more than even maybe the younger child, and so it, there's the advantage of that. But you may not be as spoiled financially. You may not be as spoiled through the exhaustion of your parents letting you mm-hmm. have all this freedom. Um, mm-hmm. What what other things came out and and kind of impressed you in all the research you studied when it comes to birth order. Anything else stand out for you? Yes, I think this is an, a great example of how we make so much out of statistical significance versus actual significance. Huh. Um, so some, when you have thousands and thousands of people in a study, it's not going to take much to show something that you can say, oh, this is, you know, the probability is this couldn't have happened by chance, mm-hmm. but um, statistics are really weighted not in term, not just probability, but also meaningfulness. And you have to look at if you have a five point scale and the difference is a point oh two. Yeah, um, what does that really mean, practically speaking? Well, and that that's important for the researchers, right, to start noticing that is this is this meaningful at all? Well, it is up to the researchers, but it's also up to um, a host of other factors. There was just an article um, in the Times earlier this week that talked about how there's so much pressure now from scientifically oriented journals to get their stuff out there to the public that um, not, 
little tiny differences like this um, might be magnified in the way you read about it in the press. Yeah. So I think for the person listening to this, not only can you learn about birth order and its possible effect on you, but also to read what you're reading um, in the media or hearing with a bit of skepticism, especially if it's an area that's important to you. Hmm. Because it seems like it would be easy to just keep taking every study, and because it was a study with a thousand or two thousand participants, just believe it. Yeah, that's right. So I think you know we can say, well, the researchers are going to do their research. You know that that that's going to happen. It's it's how it gets uh, broadcast to the public that really becomes the question. Mm. And that's really interesting because. I, you know, I, I have I have a doctorate, and I'm a little more careful than probably most. But I'm always just saying whatever. There's others that that don't care about the validation of it. It just makes a really good story. It makes yeah, a really good right. angle. So let's talk about it. But that's right. that's interesting because now we are mass we're we're mass broadcasting the research in a way we never have before. That's right. We're and actually creating hear- a market. Yeah, there's one line on TV, you know, the morning show that talks about a study, and you're, oh, wow, that's really true. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Isn't that true? And we go with it like that. that's the new fact, and yet it's one study. It's fun because when I actually do interview the researcher, it's fun how I I always would talk about it in a more broad sense, and they're always bringing it back to the – really, we were talking about this segmented audience in this group at this time in this moment. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good. Um, I I think the other point, though, getting back to the birth order study um, and that that confluence model, um, you know, we have to add to that to this idea of stereotype threat, which I point out in the blog that yeah. um, the fact that you perceive yourself to be this way could influence the way you actually respond um, towards that stereotype. That's huge, isn't it? Yes. That's like self-fulfilling, right? So you're thinking a certain way or you're supposed to fulfill a certain role and Uh then you live and actually fulfill the role just because it's your role. That's right. And, and, you know, and you, you're not aware of it. Other people aren't aware of it. Uh, it just, but it's this subtle influence. And I guess it's good if it, the influence is positive, but if the influence is the opposite, um, it can really have you, um, you know, become hamstrung by these beliefs and perceptions. So in the end, we, it seems like we just need to make sure we're clear that we create our destiny. I mean, we're influenced deeply. But we have to – we aren't just a certain way, are we? We get to still choose what we believe about ourselves, how we magnify our traits, our personalities, how we handle what was handed to us environmentally um, or developmentally. We still are, I guess, the major influencing factor. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. And and it, sometimes it's – very difficult to undo years of having been treated in a certain way, but your realization that this could be a possibility can be the beginning of that change. Hmm. And, and it seems like we ought to be careful as parents, the kind of the pop psychology we're throwing at our kids. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you pointed it out very well, and, and we see this all the time, um, that we're, we are constantly labeling our kids, and whether it's you're like your relative's, yeah. Or it, it's because of your birth order. Either way, um, it's communicating this message to them that can lead them to feel boxed in. Mm. 
And it's so it's it's such an innocuous thing. Yeah, just yeah. I'm well. You know, I am the oldest in the family. It's just such a simple sentence, but it, mm-hmm. it's pretty weighted, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I think it'd be fun for listeners to play the little game that we played, where try to guess somebody's birth order. Yeah. Um, that's a great way to put the test. You know, the, the proof is in the test because what we'll tend to say is, "Oh yeah, I knew that." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> You had to be objective about it. It's so true. Um, It's really, it really is. And then, too, because it blows up a paradigm. Like, yeah, well, Susan obviously is a professor and so talented and skilled because she was the oldest child, or (laughs) was just a really spoiled, pampered child. And the reality (laughs) is, neither is probably true. Yeah. Well, you're. We appreciate you, Susan. No matter what order you came in, you're oh. you're great, and we need Thank you. Thank you, Matt. You too. Thank you very much, and everybody, go check out uh, her Psychology Today blog. Um, really, just all you got to do is look up Susan Whitborn, and you'll get to everything Susan. By the way, number two in the birth order, out of two. Good stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, Rod Gustafson is going to be joining us from Parent Previews. He's going to be telling about some uh, movies that are family-friendly coming out uh, this weekend right here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be talking with him up next. Welcome back, friends. To the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, it's Donut Day. It's Get a Donut for Charity Day today. And this just in, apparently our buddies from BYU Sports Nation have provided donuts for the entire crew. James is licking his chops. I'm just dying sitting here knowing that there's donuts in the other room. They're in the other room. They won't let us have them in the studio. (laughs) Or will they? That's funny because they brought my birthday cake in here one day on fire with a huge fire on top of it, 40,000 candles. Yeah, there were about four people that got fired because of that. It was that bad, yeah, yeah and they... the smoke alarm went off. <laughs> so uh, happy Donut Day and thank you to BYU Sports Nation, which by the way, about an hour and 10 minutes from now, you'll be able to just eat them up like a donut on Donut Charity Day. Uh, joining us now, Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com. Uh, they're a great friend of the show, and Rod is basically there to make sure that as a family, you know what's going on in the movie world so you can make better decisions for your family. Rod, how are you, my friend? I am doing just fine. Thank you, Matt. Happy Donut Day. Yes. Happy <laughs> Donut Day. You know, the, well, here's a, here's a plug for... Safeway stores in Canada, at least. Yeah. If you go to Safeway here after seven o'clock at night, yes. it's half price donuts. They call it Donut Happy Hour. I don't oh. know if they have that no. in, in the United States or not, but I head over there at seven o one. There you go to get <laughs> your donut fix. And they're great donuts. You know what? They're in good. the U.S., Happy Hour is usually just alcohol. Yes, yeah. Well, see, in Canada, it, it includes donuts. <laughs> see, you know what? Canada does so many things right. Yeah, there you go. Mm. We have the, we've got the alcohol one here, too. Yeah, you have I, both. I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I'm usually in for the donut. Yeah. In fact, always. <laughs> well, why, would, why wouldn't you be? So, Rod, you're at Parent Previews. Really, it's a resource 
for parents to be able to to just kind of see what is in a movie, understand if it's something our children should be seeing. Because so many times the kids will be running out the door saying, I'm going to a movie, and we don't even know what they're yep. going to see sometimes. So yep. th- that's kind of your goal is to help help walk us through as a parent what maybe our kids should be seeing. You put a little grade scale on it. Um, today, though, you've got, what, two or three movies that are coming out. Love and Mercy is one of them, huh? Yes, Love and Mercy is one of them, and this is probably out of the three movies that are out of the three movies that I want to discuss briefly today. Love and Mercy is probably the one most people have not heard of, and uh, this is the this is the story of Brian Wilson, who of course is the guy that put together the Beach Boys. Him and his yeah. brothers. That Brian was really the the leader of the band, and uh, we all have heard the stories of the things that Brian Wilson went through. He had some issues with drugs, like. So many of these musicians did back in the 1960s and then had big issues with depression and mental health concerns and that type of thing as well um, into the 90, in the 1980s, early 1990s. So this movie kind of it covers both of those time periods in a parallel fashion. So first of all, real quick, from the, from, uh, the artistic perspective, this is a very well-made movie. I, I was really impressed. Uh, the way the director has put it together and has put, created these two parallel storylines and the intercuts between them, because what it does is it does show the consequences. One moment you're in the 1960s and you're seeing the choices that he's making, some bad choices to try LSD and mm. the psychedelic drug culture. And then we cut to the late 1980s where we see a lot of the consequences for those bad choices. And we really like consequences, the parent previews. Because, yeah. You know, that's where the, that's where the learning comes in. That's, now, you know, I, cause who didn't love the Beach Boys, by the way? Oh, yeah, I know. Like that and was it. it. And most of us see the Beach Boys as being a pretty wholesome, clean-cut group of guys. And wow, you watch this and you realize, especially in Brian's case, that that he was really dealing with some big issues. That back then it was much easier to cover those types of things up. Yeah. So, so the downside of this, though, Matt, is that the movie does recognize that much of Brian Wilson's greatest work. His greatest creativity came during that drug era, and so there is an implied message that his creativity was enhanced through hmm. the use of drugs. And so that's a bad message that you'd want to have your children, your kids, your teenagers see in this movie. So, you know, this is one, like, I think a lot of parents would enjoy the film if they enjoy the Beach Boys. There's some cool segments in this movie where they're in the studio recording their songs and you see how they made all these neat sounds and everything else, how huh. they produced the album. So it's got some incredible detail to it, but it would also be good that if you do have teenagers interested in the Beach Boys and they want to see this movie, it would be good for you to watch it with them so that you can explain to them the consequences of what happened um, it, it, to his life. So incredible performances. There is some profanity in this film. That is probably going to be your biggest issue. Uh, there are a couple of brief moments of sensuality, but they're kind of the fade to black things before things get started. So, yeah, um, so it really not it's not too bad in that regard. Interesting. But yeah, that's Love and Mercy. Would it, it surprise me if we see some Oscar nominations in this one? Would it be a good a good show to to deal with substance abuse with your kids and, I, and to bring up the issue and talk about it? And yes. 
I think so, because it certainly, I mean, later in his life, in the 1980s period, what happens, and this is a true story, he was under the care of a psychiatrist who talked him into making him his legal guardian. So Brian Wilson basically became a dependent adult under the care of the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist was abusing his medical privileges, had Brian on all sorts of prescription medication that was causing him even more harm. So, I mean, there are a lot of examples of how substance abuse can destroy your life. Hmm. But as I say, the downside to the message is, and, and... and this is true, you know, whether we like it or not, was his greatest creativity came through that yeah. period where he's on drugs. And so that's something you want to yeah. carefully also approach your kids about. I don't care how how many gold records you have. Do you really <laughs> want to do that with your life? Right. Really, no. that's what you have to ask your kids at the end of this movie. Exactly. we got a couple more minutes. Talk about Spy. Well, Spy is pretty much what I was expecting Melissa McCarthy <laughs> starring in a film that is really trying to be a send-up on the James Bond style of spy movies, secret agent movies. And, you know, so here's the good part. The good part is this is a story about a woman who is a death jockey, and she is just unnoticed at at the CIA or whatever agency this is supposed to be. And what she does is she stares at a computer monitor and helps secret agents work their way through these dangerous situations. She's got this omnipotent perspective that's never explained how she can see everything on the computer monitor, but she talks to them in the, a little earpiece and tells them, go left, go right, there's three guys behind you, you know, and this type of thing. Interesting. Well, what, she really wants to be on the front line. She gets an opportunity to do that, which in itself, it's, I really appreciate the fact, obviously, Melissa's a bigger woman, and, yeah. and I appreciate the fact that this movie is really telling women that it doesn't matter. You can be trained to, you can be trained to be a fighter. You can be t- intelligent and all of these things. Body image doesn't relate to any of those things. That's the good news about this movie. The bad news is it's full of explicit violence. It is chock full of profanity. Uh, there's some sexual content in this movie as well. It is rated R, um, but the reason that we're covering it is we these, this genre that is really appealing, it's kind of a, the gross-out genre that was popular, became popular with male audiences about over a decade ago. It's really becoming more popular now with female audiences, hmm. too, and this movie is really targeting the female audience. You'd almost think with, uh, with Melissa McCarthy being in it that it would be just pure comedy, slapsticky, but it's yeah, not. It's, yeah. it's, it sounds kind of intense. Well, and that's the other problem from an artistic perspective with this movie, Matt. It doesn't know if it wants to be a political thriller or if it wants to be a romantic comedy or hmm. not a romantic comedy, but, you know, like it's just a comedy. It's kind of all of those things mixed together, which is also makes it makes it a little difficult. Now, the other critics, I must admit, they love it. This thing is getting really good reviews really? from the general rank and file of movie critics. But from a parent previews perspective, we're saying be very careful with this one. Lots of content in it. And I, Matt, the other, I, I should also explain, the big overlying message that comes from this film is in order for her to prove that she is tough, 
even though she's an incredible fighter, she's been trained to handle herself in combat situations, she starts swearing like the men swear. Oh. And she starts using all of these profanities. And so the message that comes across is, you know, to, to young women watching this film, teenagers, would be that, you know, your language is, using that language makes you tough. Well, oh. and of course, that's not a message that we appreciate. Yeah, you don't necessarily need to lose yourself to no. become something. Hmm. No, exactly. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, Rod, you did it again. I mean, that, that's one <laughs> you just steer your kids away from, I think. D, yeah, you, you basically gave it a D plus. And if, if you go to parentpreviews.com because every movie's on there and you can just kind of run through the, the review and see exactly what's going to be in the movie. So if you've got a child coming up, uh, going to the movies now that summer's out. Um, might be a good thing. Rod, we appreciate you, my friend, and uh, keep up the great work at parrotpreviews.com. Ah, hour number two, folks. It's in the books. Done. We're going to take a break, uh, do a little headlines for you, and come back. Whole new hour next hour. Uh, tons of great stuff coming up. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. National Donut Day. Mm, one of the greatest holidays known to man. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Even the Mormon Tabernacle Choir loves National Donut Day. Welcome to the program, the show where we try to uh, help you live longer, even though it's National Donut Day. Uh, live stronger and uh, lead the people you're with. Life's about leadership, right? Otherwise, you're just going to end up having to follow the leader. But sometimes the leader won't always follow you or lead you where you need to go. So that's the goal of the show, to give you the tools to help you see the good in the world and go make a better life for you, your family, your friends, and really everybody around you, your coworkers. Today we've got a great topic coming up. Um, two of the most important traits to making a lasting relationship. Terry South, what would you say they are? Two of the most important traits. A clear division of labor. Clear division of labor, A. Okay, we'll take that. Bing! Any others? If I was brave? Yes. I would continue my thought there, but... Good. Um, You're self-censoring? Excellent. Yeah. It's a step... By the way, that's that's a great thing for a healthy relationship. My wife listens sometimes. The ability to self-censor. Or people that know her listen. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. I always get in trouble when I go home. It's really... I know. Welcome to my world. I go, you can't hold work against me. It doesn't, doesn't work. It can't, but she does. She does. So, I, I, so give us the two. Well, you already did it. You already told us because one of them is one that you gave us was oh. just to self-censor. Like okay. you don't have to say everything. <laughs> right. So division of labor and self-censor. Those are good. Those aren't the ones that right. are the two. But I mean you – You're close. If everyone knows their role, then there's no – then there's yeah. there and and it's negotiated and everyone this is what I can do and this we're is happy what you can do it, yeah. and you're happy with it. That's good. There's a lot of stress in relationship that's gone. Let's ask James because James is the newest member of the marriage club in in our little office area. Oh, it's a club? 
Yeah. Do we have meetings? Oh, yeah. Did you not get the memo? No. Maybe because you're maybe on the outs. Maybe. Maybe somebody knows something I don't know. Yeah, your wife's called. That's great. Uh, what, James, would you say are the two most important traits to making a lasting relationship? A, uh, a deep pockets, I would say. Mm. Yes, excellent answer. Money. Money talks. And a fast internet connection. Bing! There's a lot of stress in my house last night. Internet was because slow. Because of internet. See, that's it. Yeah, you nailed it. That's, those are the two. Money and internet connection. Isn't that interesting? Wow. It seems shallow. A little bit. A little bit. That's what it seems, but it's a lot more profound than when you think about it. Money and internet connection. Yeah, if you really dig into it, it's just, your mind blows up. It's kind of a metaphor, too. You have to think about it. Right. If you don't understand it, the number one thing couples fight about is money. And and the Wi Fi. And the number two thing would be the the Wi Fi connection. I mean, if you loved your wife, you'd have a good connection of Wi Fi. Mm hmm. I think that's what they always mean when they say, like, I don't feel like we're connected. Mm. I think that's what she's talking about is Wi-Fi. They're yeah. not talking about the relationship. <laughs> no. Communication. No. Wi-Fi oh, will yeah. fix that. Oh, you mean you haven't you have any trouble streaming Netflix, honey? Yeah, I can't get on Facebook. It's taking forever. Man, well, <laughs> there's more truth to this. And my, my solution is, well, let me go reset the router again. Yeah. And, you know, that's just me buying time waiting for the internet to kick back in oh man and that also i cycle through goes into the other ones like oh well honey we have deep pockets so let's go get better internet yeah if you really love me you'd have a bigger router processing our wi-fi at least 50 megabits come on what a loser (laughs) my wife and i had this little moment because i filmed something at my son's graduation i videoed it and she wanted me to send it to her Mm. however on her 64 gig phone it's full right it's full Mm. And I'm like, how did you fill up 64 gig? And she has what well, she says, like, I have like, I have a ton of videos. Well, I'm like, well, you know, store them. She's like, well, I don't know how. Well, then just delete them. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So she keeps, she's gone through this horrible process in her mind where she's had to decide which memory she wants to delete in order to keep more memories. I love you, but not that much. It's like she's got dementia and she can only keep so many memories in her head. And I'm like, we could just upload those. But then it would come back to streaming and Wi-Fi and ah, unless we backed it up like on something like more tangible, like a hard drive. So I'm assuming we'll find out the two most important traits in a long-lasting marriage relationship. Yeah, but you got to listen to the show. But we got to wait. And it's nothing that we've said. Mm-mm. Not the even close. Division of labor. It's really which, romantic which, if it, you hear about that. It, yeah, it, not even close. <laughs> You guys are soft. They basically are kindness hmm. and generosity. Oh well, yeah, I mean, if I mean, those, it, those were great. If that's the direction you want to go, but it was implied with division yeah. of labor. That's interesting. Division of labor, not even in there, not even the top fifty. But see, hmm. if you did division of labor with kindness and generosity, right? Yeah. I think that was implied. Yeah, of course it was. Anything going on? Uh, the Washington Post I just found put out an article today. Uh, telling you just how many U.S. governors have thrown their hat into the presidential race from 2006 to 2015. How many? One in eight governors in this country have decided to run for office. One run in for the eight. presidency. Yeah. That's interesting because one in eight think that they're the answer. 12% has run, is running, or likely to run for the 2016 election. So are they the smarter governors or are they the ones – 
that because maybe the smarter governors are the other 88 percent that are like, yeah, let's don't get involved with that. Let's just take a nap. Yeah, I I think what it comes down to is you see you're a governor. You're it's kind of uh, you're you're running the state. It's a smaller version of the country. And you can take those skills that you develop as governor and use them as a president, whereas sometimes a senator may have experience you know, foreign policy, you trade, bet. all those types of things, but they don't have experience governing. They don't have a, administrating and being over uh, budgets and actually keeping to budgets. So you can make that argument when you run that, look, I have all this experience because I can't Hillary, Hillary knows this because she came out firing, just shooting guns about voter laws and how oppressive certain voter laws are in certain states. And she went after governors. Yes. Bush. Uh, Pataki, what did she go after Pataki? She went after um, Scott in Walker. Wisconsin, Walker, Walker, and she went after, I mean, actually a few that aren't even in, that aren't in New Jersey's yeah. Chris Christie. Chris Christie. So, and uh, Texas. Rick so Perry. she's shooting after the governors, which is interesting because if the front runner that, that is the front runner of the Democratic Party is gunning after the governors... It's fascinating. It says yeah. something. It says maybe it's the governors she's afraid of. The governess. They could they could pull out the experience and she hasn't mm-hmm. she hasn't been an administrator over anything. So. Kind okay. of an interesting thing to watch there. Yeah. Uh this weekend, mm-hmm. possible triple crown situation with really? our with a horse These uh, always American Pharaoh. Okay. Looking to become the first horse to win all three jewels of the triple crown since uh affirmed did it in 1978. It'll be on Saturday, Belmont Stakes. He's uh, American Pharaoh's a heavy favorite to win after picking up victories of the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. He will start from the number five position mm. in the 147th running of the Belmont Stakes uh, in New York. However, a number of competitors who challenge American Pharaoh in the Kentucky Derby skip the Preakness, which was yeah. the second leg, hey. so they could race in the Belmont Not and try fair. to knock them off. That, see, that's what they always do, and that's the cheaters. You've got to run them all. That was the... Uh, the horse owner last year, as he complained and he was screaming yeah, I didn't remember that. at the TV and his wife was pulling him away going, hey, stop it, stop it. That's cool. Uh, a man says, an Atlanta man says he was harassed for exercising his Second Amendment rights while at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport last week. Uh-huh. That's in Atlanta. Jim Cooley says that while he and his wife took his daughter to the airport after a vacation, he openly carried his AR-15 rifle oh, yeah. with a 90-round barrel clip. Which under, under Georgia state law, it's legal to do this as long as you don't go into any TSA controlled areas. By the but way, as he was there, <laughs> a bunch of police, uh, you know, three or four police officers came up and they asked him questions. They followed him around the airport. They followed him to his car, and he's asking, "What are you guys concerned about?" Hey, get off my back! It's just a ninety rounder. <laughs> I have can, a, I have a ninety round semi-automatic machine gun. It's fine. You're cool. Everyone's great with this. Can a guy not bring a ninety round semi-automatic machine gun into an airport without everyone freaking out? Apparently not. Yeah, it's so. interesting because TSA's had a lot of bad news lately about how poorly they catch things. But so that was, they didn't miss that. Well, he didn't go anywhere no. near that. He was in the public areas. Yeah, and according around. to Atlanta law, you can do – or Georgia law, you can do that. My question is if he walked in with the AR-15 hanging off of him, just it was yeah. just hanging in the front. Everybody could see it because that's part of the rules. It has yeah. to be you know visible. And as he walked in, could he get through a TSA checkpoint with that on him? 
Well, probably not. You right? think they'd catch that? I, I bet you TSA would see that okay. in the scanner. They missed all these other ones. Hey, what's 90... that metal thing with 90 little things in it? What's that with the <laughs> barrel clip attached? Huge barrel clip, too. Comically huge barrel clip <laughs> on this sad. guy. You know what? Okay. There's a point of rights and liberties, and then there's a point of just brains. I understand. Like, just, I mean, he's trying to make a point. I understand. Yes. Be. I understand gun laws. There was the, the guys a couple months back that walked into restaurants in Texas yeah. with rifles. Yeah. I mean, by they, the way, down the street, yeah. all of the bikers were doing the same thing. They kind were, of turned ugly. They were concerned as to why people had a problem with them openly yeah. carrying rifles. But he, this guy would then argue he would have a huge advantage if he walked into that same restaurant with all the bikers. So it's concerning. So. We'll watch that story. People. They're, they're uh, deciding if any charges or anything needs to be done maybe to adjust policies at the airport. Hmm. Well, at least, you know, rest assured, folks, they're on it. They're on it. Hey, we're going to take a break. Dr. Don Cole will be joining us in just a few minutes. We're going to be talking about the two most important traits in making a lasting relationship. By the way, they might also be the same traits in taking your daughter to the airport. Maybe leave the uh, machine gun, the the semi-automatic machine gun, uh, leave it. Leave it at home and instead just bring, I don't know, some generosity, some kindness to the rest of us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, if you if you've been married and you know you want to know the secret to a healthy, happy marriage, to avoiding a divorce, one of the things you you probably are going to want to do is is somehow read the research by John Gottman. He's been on the show before. He really is one of the greatest, I think, family. Uh, researchers, marriage and family therapists uh, around, and he's had some incredibly uh, powerful research come out recently about what drives a lasting relationship. He's found it comes down to basically two traits, and um, one of a representative of Dr. Gottman's theories and teaching, Dr. Don Cole, joins us today. He's an approved professional uh, trainer for the Gottman Relationship Institute and a licensed professional counselor and family therapist. He's here today to teach us about those two traits that lead to more successful and lasting relationships. Dr. Don Cole, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. Great to have you on. We've had uh, Dr. Gottman on about a year ago. What an impressive man. And don't you agree, just his, his research is probably, I don't know of anybody that's done more research over the years. Not in this field. He's absolutely kind of the, the top of the, the heap when it comes to really careful research into uh, what makes couples tick, you know, why some of us uh, do well and others don't. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of fortunate that we're living in an age where that research has been done. It's kind of like, uh, yeah. um, you know, we know some things that we just didn't know before. And it's longitudinal, right? So he he likes to study over time. And so he has, what, what does he call it, the Love Lab? He has the Love Lab in, in Seattle, uh, which is actually being sort of restarted as we speak. And uh, some new research has been going on. But, yes, they've done research projects that have lasted as long as 20 years. Yeah. 
following the same couples year by year by year. And we learned some really interesting things from that particular study, in fact. I mean, and it's really powerful. So get into the Gottman Institute. Go go figure that out. And when you go to the Gottman Relationship Institute, um, you'll see, you know, why why Don Cole is, is, you know, out training and teaching people how to do this. Don, walk us through the two the two most important traits. When it comes right down to it in marriage, what are the two most important traits that, that increase the durability, the lasting ability of the relationship? What John discovered in his research, that the, the biggest difference between what he called the masters and disasters, the couples who make it and the couples who either divorce or are unhappily married for years, is the way they treat each other in the little things. Uh, are they kind to each other? Are they generous to each other? Uh, are they able to kind of tune into each other, pay attention to each other? Or do they get sort of self-absorbed, turn away from each other? Uh, are they harsh when they try to talk about something that's bothering them? Hmm. And so on. So it really uh, very much comes down to that basic way that we treat each other with, with kindness, with love, with patience, um, with understanding. And also that we show a lot of interest in who they are and what they're about. And, and really, I guess that's in um, in the little things. So we're not even talking about, you know, the big decisions, the big uh, the, kind of the big rocks that everybody brings up in their marriage counseling. It's almost kind of the day to day, the incessant tiny things that are the best gauge. Yeah, very much, because uh, certainly the big things are important yeah. and people you know, have betrayals and so on. Those are things that, that cause a lot, of, a lot of damage in relationships. But when you really analyze most uh, arguments that couples have, for example, what you find is they're kind of arguing about nothing. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's, there's not a lot of content behind them. It's more the way they're talking to each other that gets it off track. And you know the most significant difference between the masters and the disasters of relationship isn't that the masters never get off track. Right. The real difference is the masters know how to repair when they get off track. And the disasters get off track, they miscommunicate, they hurt each other's feelings, and they fail to repair. They either make repair attempts that don't work or they just don't even try hmm. uh, to repair. And it's, a, it's that ability to repair the miscommunications, the bad feelings, the missed connections, that's a huge difference between the two groups. That's interesting. So, uh, I mean, I know historically the, the research, and I'm, I guess now it probably came from Gottman, um, was the healthiest couples have conflict and stress too. It's not like they live this stress-free life. They just know how to repair it and go about talking through it in a healthy way. They also um, know how to maintain interest in each other. And it's probably because they've also been putting in the little things throughout the time that, that, that creates a fairly stable foundation for them to then deal with it and repair stuff. That's exactly right, Matt, because, you know, it's one thing to say, well, the happy couples repair, the unhappy couples fail to repair. Yeah. But you also have to understand what are the antecedents to repair. Why are some couples able to repair while other couples might, might try and fail. Yeah. And why does the couple who used to be able to repair now find themselves unable to? What happened? 
And there are, there are these antecedents to repair, these basic behaviors of connection or disconnection that make repair possible. Hmm. Are those the antecedents, the little things, interest? Yeah. yeah. What we call turning toward. Yeah, turning John, toward, John, yeah. John identified this and, and came up with this phrase, turning toward versus turning away. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like if I'm listening to the radio with my wife in the car and I reach over and turn up, it up because a song comes on that I like and I say something, hey, I really like this song, I'm kind of asking her for a response. I'm asking her to give me her opinion of the song or or to tell me she likes it too, or ask me why I like it, you know, get involved with that little moment yeah. in time. And if she just doesn't, it ends up feeling like a negative in the relationship, like something has been lost. Uh-huh. And when that happens too much, there's too much of that turning away, um, our positivity in the relationship goes down. And when that positivity goes down, repair gets more difficult. And, and oh, that's oh, that's huge, isn't it? And that's so subtle. It's it's right. it's just right there in that little. There's fifteen, twenty times a day where you might just turn and say, "How was your day?" Right. And, right. How was your day? How are you feeling? Uh, that's the bid, uh, right? They call that the bid. That's the bid. And then that's the, the bid. then the partner should turn and and answer and respond in a kind of a lifting manner. Yeah, and kind of get involved. But the, the the and nobody does it perfectly. No. In the in the research in Seattle, uh, the the masters were eighty six percent successful in this bidding and turning toward process. Hmm. It means fourteen percent of the time they failed, but the percentage was high enough. Interestingly, in the that big project in Seattle, the couples who failed to turn toward each other, they turned away two thirds of the time. Every one of those couples was divorced within five or six years. Really. And uh, it was just a very telling difference. Yeah. Um, you know, marriage counselors, just to speak to our field, they, they've kind of had it wrong to a large degree. What we've frequently done is a couple comes in, okay, tell me where your conflicts are, and we start working on trying to solve their conflicts. Yeah. But what John's research has taught us is that that doesn't really help improve the relationship very much. What improves the relationship more is that when you improve the basic friendship, this turning toward pattern that we're talking about. Mm. When that gets stronger, conflict management improves. Yeah. But improving conflict management doesn't make the basic relationship get stronger. So yep. in our in our couples workshops and the therapy that, that we do in the Gottman Method, we really certainly we have to help people improve their conflict management skills and and work on those things. But we really also emphasize this reconnecting process so that uh, the negativity goes down, positivity comes up, and repairs are more possible. Well, you know what? That's, it's such a great point. Again, we're talking with Dr. Don Cole um, about marriage and the, the tools that we need to have in order to create a healthier, happier marriage. We're going to take a break and come back. I mean, when you think about it, why would I want to handle a conflict if I don't even like you? Why would I even want to fix this if I don't like you? Maybe friendship needs to precede, uh, you know, conflict resolution uh, and all the little tools that lead to that friendship. We'll come back and continue this discussion. Plus, we're going to get into two very specific traits that uh, science is showing is the key to a lasting relationship, kindness and generosity. We'll get into those when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. 
friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, relationships are tough. You know, they're just tough. And even if you love him and it's great and everything's perfect, life happens. And, and it still isn't just a cakewalk. So we have asked Dr. Don Cole to join us. And uh, Dr. Don Cole is a... Uh, He's a, an approved professional trainer for the Gottman Relationship Institute and a licensed professional counselor and family therapist. And uh, he's done extensive research and, and just going through his, his many academic degrees, he's, he's really put together some, some powerful tools. And we're trying to, to pick his brain um, on, on really what matters most to creating a lasting relationship. Dr. Don Cole, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So great to have you. Now, uh, in the research, I know uh, kindness and generosity have been touted as as really the two, I guess, traits that are that are key to to making a relationship last. And I, is it just because they fit into those other skills you were just teaching us in the last block? Uh, yes, I think so. Those terms have really been picked up by the media in the last few months, and they I think they are really a good encapsulation of of John's research uh, into couples. Let me give you an example of the generosity piece. One of the things that we noticed in watching how couples who are successful deal with their conflicts is that they try to find ways to compromise. But their compromises really are based on how can I possibly give you whatever you want, what you need. Tell me what you need so I can... If, it, if it's at all possible for me to give that to you without giving up my core self, of course, mm-hmm. but to, to enable you to have that, to, to help your dreams come true, that's one of the real traits that you see that I think uh, has in more recent times been labeled generosity. That's one of the ways you see it at work in the laboratory. You see these couples talking about a problem, and he's saying, okay, yeah, I hear that – that's really important mm. to you. That's your dream. Let's figure out a way we can do that. Uh, you know, again, we have to honor ourselves and, and not give up too much. Yeah. That doesn't work either. But the, the successful couples are really trying to find ways for their partner to be happy, their partner's dreams to come true. It, it's uh, like so it, it, it seems like they're generous in their interpretation of the other. Yes, that's a, that. Yes, that comes back to what I was saying earlier about this positive perspective idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we look at our partner, we always see them through an emotional lens. It's not possible to see your partner neutrally. Right, especially your partner of all people, right? Of all people, sure. Anyone that we're in a relationship with, we tend to have feelings about in all of our interactions, but with our life partner. That's where that is most in play. Yeah. And, and those feelings in the successful couples are primarily based on a positive interpretation. Oh, this is a person who loves me that I love. This is a person who wants good things for me that I want good things for her or him. Man. They have that attitude yeah. of, of watching their partner and seeing them doing something right so they get an opportunity to say something good. Uh, rather than watching them to catch them doing something wrong, so they can criticize or complain. Yeah, so it's like, it's like it doesn't. It's, a lot of times, it seems like a competition. Like we're competing, and it might just be because we're hurt and we're starving from you know the lack of attention or the lack of caring that they the the our partner becomes our enemy, not our not this person we're trying to 
just feed. Yeah, and most couples get there very gradually. They, yeah. they get there slowly. Now, there are some couples who get there very quickly because they use what John called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah. That, that when they're, they're talking, when they're upset, they really criticize or get defensive or use contempt, go into stonewall mode. And those things are very destructive, and people tend to pull away from each other very quickly when those things are happening. Hmm. But, the, but that's all normal. That's, I guess, our, our normal inclination is not necessarily to always make the relationship better. Our normal inclination might be to stonewall and to get aggressive or to pursue. And uh, So it's almost like you're countering your normal, your, your nature. Well, maybe, maybe that's – I don't know that I, that I think our nature is, is to be um, aggressive and mean. I know that no. we feel – I know that when we feel like we're being attacked or yeah. that we're being uh, not cared for, not cared for, that we are more likely to go there. Right. But e- but even the couples who are good at avoiding those things still end up in trouble sometimes. It just may take a little longer. Yeah. Uh, but they can end up in trouble because uh, they're not doing the little things, and then it feels like, wait, wait a minute, this this person isn't really there for me. I, I can't really trust that this person has my best interest at heart. And a lot of times those problems happen in very subtle, um, even unconscious ways. We don't even realize that I've been so involved in my work, for example, or since we had kids, I've been so engulfed with the task of parenting, uh, which has actually been shown by John's research to be a very, a very, um, difficult transition for many couples to make. Sure. Uh, we get so involved in parenting that we, and obviously we have to turn toward our kids, we have to meet our children's needs, but if we fail to turn toward each other during that time, relationships really suffer. Yeah, yeah, because they, they demand attention, they demand some focus. Uh, Don, we have to wrap up in about a half, a half a minute or so, but I'd love to know, what would you say is the one thing that we could do today? that would just immediately put a spark, a little bit more trust in the relationship if we could just do this? If we could do, you know, if I could, if I could take every couple who's listening and say, you know, sometime this evening, sit down, get a cup of tea, whatever, look at each other in the eye and say, you know what, I really want to know what your dreams are. Huh. I really want to know what matters to you. What's the most important thing to you? And ask each other that. And then really start talking about how can we make that come true for each other. If they start turning toward each other in that way, I think they're going to see a relationship really move in the right direction. That's beautiful. No, really. And and do it with sincerity, with kindness. Yeah, I think you'll see some major change there. Yeah, with that real openness, I want to know what's on your heart. Please tell me. With that sense of open arms open heart. That really will make a big difference. That's great. Again, Dr. Don Cole, thank you for your insight and uh, just that wonderful assignment. Go tonight, sit down eye to eye, ask your partner, I want to know what your dreams are. What are your dreams? What is most important to you? Try to figure it out. Just be open to it. Don't react to it. Don't roll your eyes. Ah, Powerful stuff. Great, uh, great learnings. That's the benefit, really of living in today's uh, day and age with all this technology, all this information. Not only can you get this great research that uh, Dr. Don Cole's bringing to us, but you also uh, can keep going back to it and back to it um, just by just by paying attention. Go look up Dr. Don Cole 
and, uh, and, and become a part of the change in your marriage. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Come right back with our friends at BYU Sports Nation up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This song going to my peeps, my bros down at BYU Sports Nation. The givers of the great gift, those who sent us donuts on, yes, this National Donut Day. Spencer Linton, first of all, thank you for the donuts. And I don't know who's with you today. It is Brian Logan. Brian Logan. And you are welcome. I bet it was Brian's idea to send us the donuts. Actually, it was uh, one of our student assistants, Brandon Crow. So he deserves all of the credit. They, so it wasn't. How come? How come none of the talent thought of that? We're just. Uh, I'm on a diet right egotistical, now. Egotistical. So. No good for nothing. <laughs> you know. I'm on a diet right now, so I feel I feel kind of bad oh, slash boy. guilty giving you know you guys donuts when I'm not eating them. I mean, I'm, I'm not partaking yeah. in. This you know what? Holiday, I'll have so, yours. I'll you know. have yours. Brian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take mine. I you know what? You're that. too healthy to be on a diet. I'm t- <laughs> You're ripped. statement. I am just trying to get. I'm just trying to get my six pack back. Why? You know. Or I okay. Scratch that. I'm just trying to get my eight pack. Oh, back. your eight pack. <laughs> Back. Oh, what a jerk! I'm just, you know, I'm sorry. I just, I didn't want to make you feel bad, Spencer. Oh. That, but, I don't, I don't yeah. like breaking my pack make down me feel into bad. pieces. I didn't want you to make, you know, anyway. I'm just, I'm just fine with my physical appearance, Brian. Oh, okay, that's good for you, man. Goodness Look at that. Gracious. Just so you know, I, I feel horrible. Issues. I, I feel love horrible. the like the the low key just straight up insults. Oh, I didn't want to make you feel bad about your body. <laughs> what? I, what I, in I the world? I didn't know your confidence meter was at, man. We haven't had that talk in a while. Listen, so, my confidence you know. meter is up, just like you saying that you're not scared to defend Mitch Matthews. Like yeah. I, I have nothing to be afraid <laughs> of. Oh no, only on the five yard line. <laughs> Here we go. You know, other than that, you'll defend him the other ninety five yards. Just not I'm the good. five yard line. Just not the five yard line. No. Uh, hey, uh, I have to ask you this because this is just killing me. Uh, what do you think of last night's basketball game, Steph Curry? I think going head to head, LeBron. They were matched up perfectly. It was, it was great. LeBron James was amazing. You Seriously, know, he's a four time MVP. We saw why. Uh, yeah. You know, they isolated him a lot, which is you know sometimes not super fun to watch as a fan. But <laughs> right. but when he's the man, you give him the ball. I thought he was great. Um, I thought Golden State obviously dominated the overtime session, and they hit big shots, and Cleveland just was horrible in the extra session. Yeah, what but, happened there? I don't know. It was Tired. an entertaining game one. You know, it goes to overtime. Can't complain. No, no. It was good. Yeah, and? It was good. It was, it was good. You know, I have to confess, um, I fell asleep during <gasps> Brian <laughs> right, going, into, going into overtime, I fell asleep. I stayed up for the last shot, and... Uh, yeah, I fell asleep, but I thought it was a good game. Uh, I was you thought really, it was a good game the four minutes you watched? I woke up. I woke up probably. I've been going through this we- really weird sleep pattern where I go to sleep for like 10 or 15 minutes, and then I yeah. wake up, and I'll be up for maybe two, three hours of the night and then go back to sleep. I think so it's I narcolepsy. Is that what it is? <laughs> I mean, I'm not that kind of doctor. Should I get like, I'll I'll get, like checked out or something? Yeah, you might, or you might not want to drive heavy machinery. 
<laughs> I, mean, I don't want to. <laughs> Do not use well, heavy I drive, machinery. Well, I drive a Honda, so I don't. You know, that should be good. Well, that you're fine then. That yeah. instruction always cracked me up. Do not operate heavy machinery. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You any light machinery? Feel free to take <laughs> yeah, your exactly. life. Exactly. What? What? <laughs> but it's okay to go drive this. Yeah. You know, go ahead, if it's drive just a, a Honda. small forklift. You're good. You're good. Yeah. A little skid loader, you're fine. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you don't want to any, operate any of the big stuff. So narcolepsy, by definition, excessive, uncontrollable daytime sleepiness. Mm, okay. Uh, it also says, see Brian Logan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the issue is because I'm on my diet, I've been going back to the gym and uh, you know, mm. waking up at you know, 4.30, 4.45 every other day uh, to try to get a workout in. Wow. Um, so that's maybe why. This is all for a, an, an eight-pack? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, if you want to get down to the root of it, I would say more for my wife. There you, you know, go. It's for your for wife. wife. Yeah, this your wife wants an eight pack. You know, yeah. You know what's mm-hmm. great is once you've been in the marriage about 25 years and their, their eyesight starts going, <laughs> then you can get away with a one pack and they're fine. <laughs> Feel that one pack, baby? A jiggly one pack, we call it at my house. I've got like a four pack going four. on right now. Yeah. That's great. I'm I've trying. Got, I've got a four pack, but one's on my back, one's on my thigh. <laughs> One's on my gut. It's embarrassing. One's under my chin. Well, nice. I can help you out with that if you want to um, hit the gym with me at, at 5 o'clock yeah, in the morning. That's never going to happen, Brian. <laughs> Brian, I would love to, but oh, I've got to do this show. Uh, yeah, so many other things you got to do, right? Uh, family and uh-huh, work. That's family. why you got to go yeah. earlier. See, you know? I don't know how you do that. I'm not that kind of guy. I, I'm just a lazy bum. Yeah. You could always do... But I do appreciate the donuts. You could always do the show from the gym. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> a remote a remote <laughs> broadcast from the gym. <laughs> All you hear is my heavy breathing. We can go back and forth, you know, when we're in between sets. Well, that would I be could, great. I take the mic. We're not that kind of show, though, where you just want to hear my heavy breathing and sweating all over the mic. <laughs> it's not going to be worth it. Are you guys still doing your show today? We are. We have uh, an interesting show today in that uh, we are setting things up uh, before we send it over on BYU Radio and BYU TV to the funeral services of uh, Elder L. Tom Perry. And mm. so we're we're kind of the accordion show today, but yeah. that doesn't mean that we won't make an elite effort. You will. Because yeah. Elder Perry was a huge BYU fan. Totally. He loved it. And, I mean, he was a, he was just a, a big-time sports fan in general. Had a huge affinity for the Boston Red Sox, threw out a first pitch there. Uh, one of the highlights of his uh, his life, according to uh, a recent article that I read. So um, Maybe to- that's it. You guys need to ask, because you always ask these really riveting questions that that we have to figure out. Maybe you should just ask, which general authority of the LDS Church was most in love with BYU sports? And then have everyone debate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. I mean, I don't, I don't want to produce your win. show. I don't either. Elder Perry's up there. Yeah, I'm yeah, telling you. Elder Perry's up there. Uh-huh. So well, anyway, cool. we, we, we have a number of topics to discuss. Good. There are big-time headlines going on. Uh, notably, Dennis Pitta, former BYU football great, the tight end. He just uh, signed a five-year, $32 million contract oh. a couple of years ago. He's only played seven games because he's been dealing with uh, really significant injuries to yeah. his hip. Uh, the Baltimore Ravens sent out a video of him practicing yesterday, you know, running routes, catching passes. And so we're hoping that he gets back on the field. That's really good news. So we will start out with that. And then a, a number of other things going on uh, yeah. just at the different professional levels, minor league baseball, the PGA Tour. Um, it's BYU football junior day today, which is where they host a bunch of high school kids they're recruiting to get a firsthand look at them 
on their campus. Mm. Um, so, yeah, a bunch of stuff going on today. See, we'll, never a dull moment with you guys. You know, we, we just have to, again, we're the accordion today, so we have to be flexible. By the way, careful how you say that, because as a child, I did play the accordion. <laughs> Is that insulting? No. Yeah, I mean, I mean, well, just I'm just saying, be careful, because the accordion is very close to my heart. <laughs> Literally, you play it very close to your heart. <laughs> okay. I just want you to know that, because, I mean, you don't know a lot about me, but I used to rip it up in the Larry Pino accordion band. Nice, Larry Pino. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's going on. So, so just so you know, Brian, when we go work out, mm-hmm. I'll bring my accordion. Uh, I will, nope. I okay. can't work out. Today. No, I'll rock that place. Oh, okay. Yeah. If, you could, if you could, okay, yeah. If you can so play you know. something, a beat, then. I, I actually quit because I was so embarrassed. Anyway, it's a how whole. how good you were? Yeah. I hated being the best in the band. It was just boring for you, right? Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. My toes were, were swollen because I was tapping them so much. Oh, hey, my goodness. I know. It's, uh, it's crazy. We're going to let you guys go. Go prepare for your accordion show. Enjoy the donuts. Thank Don't you so much for any that. any heavy machinery. <laughs> That's exactly right. right. And sleep well. Come on, Brian. Get I some will sleep. Try. Good luck to your narcolepsy. Thanks. Appreciate (laughs) it. Take care, guys. Just send some prayers up for you. I I will. I totally will. Oh, that's funny. A little narcolepsy. I think I get narcolepsy when I eat too many donuts. You know, it's kind of bad for you. Man, he gets up at 4.40 or 4.30 to go work out. James, what time do you get up to work out? I don't. You don't? You don't get up? To work out. You actually, you have restless legs. So you didn't, weren't you telling me that your sleep was your workout? Well, yeah. So that's why I don't have to get up. That's just work out when I sleep. You just burn calories moving your legs all (laughs) night. It is so efficient. I bet, I bet Kaylee hates it. Has she commented on the restless leg? Yeah. What does she say? Just that it's, it keeps her up at night, you know? Yeah. So it's just like, (laughs) Yeah. It's really hard to sleep next to someone who's like constantly like who's fidgeting. shaking the bed. Yeah, exactly, and then like kicking you. Yeah, doesn't she wear shin guards now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's actually gonna, like starting to transition into full body body armor. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Wow, that's starting early. Well, because I'm getting more and more fit, so my workouts are, the intensity has to go up as well. You're, you're getting more and more fit, or you're having more and more fits. Both. Yes. Different. Yes. Well, that's great. Little, Just a little uh, view for you into the bird's all sleeping situation. Well, I'm trying to work for that 10-pack. Uh, so. Wow. Is there such a thing? I don't know. Can uh, you get that many <laughs> abs? How many abs does one have? No idea. But again, if, you, if I, I have a pack, it's just all over my body. It's there. No, it's nobody there. can see it. A lot of people don't know it's there. A yeah. lot of people comment on that. And we always like to end the show with a hero story. Who better to talk about than a 100-year-old Winnie Bagden? Winnie Bagden had no surviving family, was about to turn 100 years old. What happened next was truly tear-jerking. Winnie Bagden of England was getting close to her 100th birthday, which was on May 31st. She had no surviving family and figured that she would just spend this birthday alone, just like the last few. Bagden's caregiver, Darren Pinder, decided that Winnie deserved a lot more. Uh, Pinder uh, contacted a local radio station, one that Winnie loves to listen to, and told them all about Winnie. And together with the community, the station was uh, able to put together a giant surprise party for this 100-year-old woman to honor her. On her birthday, Winnie was headed to what she thought would just be a nice lunch with her caregiver. But when she walked in, she was overwhelmed with what she saw. She walked into a big room full of people ready to help her celebrate her birthday. There was cake, refreshments, 
and over 16,000 birthday cards from all over the world. She even received a congratulatory message from the queen herself. Uh, Winnie told Pinder that she didn't deserve this, but simply said, uh, but he responded to her, Winnie, you're a lovely person. You deserve all of this. You live to be 100. That's something to celebrate. Powerful, powerful story. We'll put that up on our uh, Twitter feed as well so that uh, you can go see the video of that. But folks, it's that simple, right? By the way, so who's the hero of the day? It's just it's not just Winnie who made it to 100 years, but it's also her caregiver and the 16,000 people that made it a point to write a letter to a 100-year-old woman who had never they'd never met. Come on. Amazing. And to a radio station, folks, see that's how you change a life. You just change it. One idea, and it doesn't have to be a huge, you know, deal. You just have to write a letter. Follow that prompting, whatever's in your heart. Do what's right, right? Here's the deal. We're going to take uh, – actually, we're done. There's the show. Simple piece of cake. You Remember, it's your life, folks. And uh, let's lose the excuses. Let's go make it a good one. Until Monday, take care, be safe, and make it a good one.